Fire Tribe, where you at? I hope you're ready, rising from the ashes and it's getting heavy Conspiracies, we got plenty and some are scary From aliens to Bigfoot, extraordinary, yeah, yeah Danunaki Dan and the homie Romy I was bugging out, all the crazy things he showed me Jesus bloodlines to the stars in the skies Always a good time, vibing with the fire tribe Hey, So wake up, wake up, get it cracking Rise out the ashes, I know you got a passion Kick off the convo with theories, many conspiracies Other dimensions, plenty ancient history Fire tribe, where you at? Wake up we about to get into it, I know you can't get enough At home, at work, it don't matter, turn it up Rising from the ashes, you know what's up, ayy uh, Rising from the ashes Yo, what's up, Fire Tribe? Welcome to Rising From the ashes, I'm Daniel Naki Dan And I am the homie Romy, hello everybody What's good in the hood, homie? Geez, well, it's 65 today up here in Northern California in January, sunny. I took my shirt off outside, got hit by the sun. I mean, dude, it's awesome. Woo! Yeah. Dollar bills thrown at you? Yes, yes, by the trees. They were just like, <laughs> oh, make it rain, Romy. And I went up and kissed they them. Were I was like, oh, flinging leaves at you. Yeah, just dropping. <laughs> it was beautiful. It was quite a scene. Quite a scene. Oh, man. Beautiful. Fantastic. So, hey, how's it going, Fire Tribe? Uh, we're finally going to put out a real episode, not hit you with a bunch more bonus episodes. This is going to be the real first episode of January, number 41. Uh, we took a little break. You know, it was Christmas time. It was holidays. Got to spend some time with family and chill out, take a break from podcasting a little bit, even though we're putting out some bonus episodes and stuff. Uh, that we had recorded earlier uh, before we took our vacation, just to keep everybody engaged a little bit and not to just completely pull out. You know, you never want to completely pull out. So, uh, so welcome back. Uh, we're going to get back into the mix of things here, and now we're doing hitting our it new, hard, hitting it hard new, with this first episode. Yeah, and our new format too, with uh, four episodes a month and one bonus show, and then all the extra good goodness on the patreon and we're gonna have lots of bonus episodes on the patreon uh so go sign up for the patreon i think roman's supposed to go change the prices uh we're gonna change it i think to like three Three bucks bucks for the lowest one and then six for the middle and then maybe 12 for the high-end high-end one and um and so go check that out and then we got we got expanded understandings and <laughs> we got devil's advocate on the patreon uh so those are going to be two extra bonus shows that are patreon only uh roman threw out a bonus on the feed of his show expanded understandings um you might have heard that one that was the mermaid in magic with beth martins which was a really good episode uh, I've seen other people comment on how good of an episode that was also. Uh, it was really fascinating, dude. So uh, I thank you, Roman. That was that was great, dude. You did well. And, um, and so I'm going to put out an episode from Devil's Advocate with Andy Rouse uh, on, the, on, the, on the regular feed. Um, we might do one more each um, on the regular feed uh, just to try to get people to come over to the Patreon and check out all our other bonus material. But we already have one extra guest scheduled this month. So that was going to, that 
guests will be on Patreon only also. So make sure that you go sign up for the Patreon and join up uh, so we can make a little extra squirrel. Plus, you're still getting lots of extra bonus content. Um, so don't act like you're not going to don't think that you're not going to get anything for your money. You're going to get plenty of extra upgrades. We keep and, it juicy uh, for you, Jaybirds. Yeah. And I mean, even Roman, before we started this, was talking to me about how all these other things that he wants to do for the Patreon members and stuff. So, you know, we're going to try to get it as juicy as we can in, in Roman's beak um, for the Patreon members. I hope everybody comes over and checks that out. It would be really great. All right. Wrap it up. No more Patreon talk. Boring. All right. That's it. Boring. I'm over <laughs> it, too. <laughs> Hell yeah. Well, this episode is great. Um, this theme for the month, we're doing God, Satan, you know, uh, above, good below, good, evil, you know. Positive, the, negative. Yeah, so much, so much, so much that, deep diving this this month. It's fucking great. And this episode is good. This great. This is a great episode, especially an intro for this topic that we're getting into. I'm fucking, yeah. I'm super stoked on this, bro. Yeah, uh, Esoteric Eddie. Edward Kano, uh, awesome dude, uh, really fun to talk to. Uh, even on the show, we even when we're talking to him, we're like, "Hey, dude, just come over and and do something on the Patreon with us and do a bonus episode. And let's just bullshit for a while." Because the guy, even though he just wrote the book, The Lucifer Mystery Revealed, he has lots of other in- intriguing information about other uh, civilizations and stuff like that. He even talked about one at the end of the show that we're like, what? We never even heard of that before. Uh, so it'd be cool just to pick his brain and figure, get some more information out of him. Uh, but this Lucifer mystery is it's intriguing uh, because he basically follows Lucifer all around through uh, all the different mythologies and everything and, and kind of tells you how this Lucifer figure got created from basically like an egregore state. And we kind of, created him from different rumors and different things going on in certain periods of time people cling to different things and then bring those things forward and then so you kind of see where this creation of this lucifer figure gets developed yeah it's fascinating and it's true it's a you know we have so much watered down information and what we think these characters are because we just hear the name of them and then it ignites all of these you know neural pathways and you're like oh yeah you know lucifer satan they're the same they're bad so on and so forth well when you really dig into it you know as as always, as we find out in these studies, up is down, and uh, we may uh, be uh, misled along the way um, by our societal upbringing. So it's really good to dive deep into this stuff. I I was I you know I was really stoked with the episode, and, and yeah, he's got a lot more information. Obviously, he wrote a book, which means he did a lot of deep diving of other context to get that specific pinpoint context so he has a bunch of stuff to draw from he's working on other books he's got a youtube channel you guys will go check it out we plug it multiple times uh and uh yeah like every every other guest that we have this month is gonna be great too so you guys are really in for the goodness strap in for an exciting month of january february is gonna be 
even even more lovely as it's dedicated to the divine feminine and understanding that more and it's going to be all women mainly uh guess so you know to, to not have just guys talking about the divine feminine uh you know to have that other, have one, yeah. yeah 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 but you know it's i yeah but it balances out more women than men which is <laughs> how it should be <laughs> yeah I mean, it's good just to have a different female perspective anyways, you know, um, not get too uh, mansplaining with everything. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, do you want to tell them who else we're going to have on the show this month or just let them figure it out? Um, I <laughs> don't have my calendar on me, but yeah, like you guys oh. will, you guys, it's it's going to be great. Like, it's only going to be a week away by the time you guys are digested this one. The next one's out. And then we yeah. go deep in on it. Um, okay, let me let me let me pull from memory. We got Bruce DeTorres coming on yes. this week. We have yeah. David Matheson. David Matheson, which is gonna be a fucking banger. And then we have Miguel from Eon Bite coming in to finish it yeah. off with um, some Gnosticism at the end. So if you can't encapsulate the understanding of the good evil uh, god satan you know complex after those four guests that we have on i mean geez uh, you you might need to uh go recalibrate yeah. uh your situation in general because they're all gonna be great and in depth and you know how we do two hours minimum usually so it's a lot yeah. of a lot of information and and please guys go join the telegram group chat to you know, tell us any findings that you have and to join that community more and yeah. to engage because we love it. We love talking uh, to you guys about it because you guys, you fire tribe and us and we, everybody, the collective goodness is how all of this is, is maintaining its speed and it's, it's gumption. So um, it's yeah. really important that we have this community and I, I'm super grateful all the time for it. And also we're not Satan worshipers just because we talk about Lucifer. We're not Satan worshippers because we don't believe in Jesus. We're not Satan worshippers because we're spiritual. So don't don't cross contaminate that shit. You know, uh, we're hitting this month from all different perspectives, from celestial to gnostic to uh, good and evil uh, with God and Lucifer. So we're we're trying to hit all different points of view to really try to. Like have a conversation about it at the end of the month, you know, in the group show and and try to see, you know, it, is there a difference between this duality or is it the duality the same? Does it, same, does, does it come from the same place, you know? Because uh, I've recently been listening to Bhagavad Gita and Krishna says he's like all encompassing. He's everything. He's the good and the bad. He's the sun and the moon. He's the he's Satan and God. He's all of it, all wrapped together into one being. And maybe we don't have to like dualize it and make one thing all good and one thing all bad. It's like us as people are are dual in our everyday lives, right? Where sometimes we do bad shit, sometimes we do good. We all try to strive to do good, right? But sometimes we do bad. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's okay to be human. And uh, we just have to realize that there's ways to become uh, higher, too. Uh, 
to illuminate ourselves and to reach that other type of consciousness that exists that we all kind of dance around in this community, you know, whether it be through uh, breath, psychedelics or mushrooms or through meditation or through other woo-woo practices, uh, biofield tuning, uh, acupuncture, uh, sound healing, any of these different things that can alter your experience in this life and bring you to a new understanding is going to be positive. And we don't have to look at those things as devilish because they don't agree with a Christian perspective. If they're things that are going to help you. I mean, obviously I wouldn't suggest going out and doing DMT or anything, but there are people that do Why? and you're gonna you're gonna know if it's good for you and if it's not good for you. you yeah, I, I mean that's I, a decision you have to make on your on your own. And I, I'm not that's what I'm saying is I'm not trying to push people into doing those things. It's a decision you make on your own self if it's worth it to you. You know what a lot of the things you brought up have in common uh with acupuncture, sound healing, biofield tuning, uh meditation. Um, and a lot of these uh, things to get us to realign and reconnect. The a main stasis that they all have in common is uh, is breath, because breath. When you think about it, or when you feel it, when you when you do it, um, it's 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 realigning. It's the most realigning thing that you have power of at the moment, at any moment in your body. You are able to connect with everything um, within your consciousness and in your physical life. You're able to tie the two together. And, you know, when you, when you go in and, and you're getting a massage, you, you want to focus on your breathing and making sure it's steady and, mm-hmm. and all these things, you know, you're not hyperventilating when you're doing any of these things, you're actually getting into a deeper, um, you know, deeper frequency. And so, it's a pillow. It's a pillowy goodness of consciousness that that we're diving into, and we have these practices that are outside of this literature, this outside of you know um, us, ha- you know, giving giving you information or information coming from an outside source. Then you get to go and breathe about it and have the connection outside of that, and so. That's the great thing about it, you know, is like we have these times for learning. We have these times for ingesting information. And then there's the digest period, just how our body works. You know, you're going to eat all day. You're going to drink. You're going to have these things that are ingesting. You ingest and then you digest. And that's the time that all of that ingestion actually gets to spread throughout everything that we are, you know, and it's, it's what makes us who we are. And there's that ingestion would probably be, you know, on the, uh, on the alchemical side, it would be the positive and digestion would be the grounding. And so there you have the energy that makes us alive within that, within that. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. That was beautiful, man. That was Thank good. you. That was really good. Uh, but let's, uh, you got anything else to R- say, or you want to jump into R F F T News News you can trust. Angel Dust. Hey everybody. What you got for us today? Um so uh plants are great 
humans, life, everything is great. I have an article um, titled Neurogenesis um, by James Duke, a PhD. And in this article, it's a, uh, I'm going to probably go over the whole thing. It's a pretty quick read. It's got a, a lot of information from all over the world of all of these different plants that help with neurogenesis. Neurogenesis is nerve growth and regeneration. And, and this article focuses on nerve, nerve growth and regeneration with herbs and food plants. So here we go. My reliable Dorland's Illustrated Medical Dictionary defines neurogenic first as forming nervous tissues or stimulating nervous energy, but I define it as stimulating nerve growth or regeneration. Dorland's didn't define the word neurotogenic back in 1974, but I define it as stimulating growth or regeneration of small nerves called axons or neurites. Doctors have prescribed or suggested many medicines and modalities for progressive neuropathy. And the 83-year-old me, it's catastrophic, causing tingling feet and creaking knees. In other words, I have arthritic and wobbly knees that creak as I climb the stairs. And below the knee, my legs are numb and tingly. Your reductionist ranter, senile senior Jim Duke, suffers serious neuropathy possibly caused by one of the more uh, one or more of the following, most likely spinal stenosis and spondy, uh, spondylis- sp- spondylosis, um, most likely, uh, oh, sorry, cryptic Lyme disease for nearly a decade, possibly pesticides. Many of my USDA colleagues have uh, seemed to have suffered pesticide poisoning, but not many of them have worked with ancient orange as I did. Alcohol, my liver tests have never fingered a generous consumption of alcohol or diabetes. I seek a food pharmacy approach that might reduce neuropathic suffering, but it may be more expansive than reductive. I base it on some challenging assumptions. Number one, all food plants contain thousands of different biologically active phytochemicals familiar to our genes from where our ancestors first ingested plants containing such phytochemicals possibly millions of years ago. Number two, when chemically out of balance or diseased, our bodies try to achieve health by getting in balance, homeostatically. Mostly sequestering needed phytochemicals and voiding unneeded or contradicted chemicals it is my questionable assumption after compiling data for 30 years that probably all edible plants contain some neurogenic and anti-neurogenic phytochemicals. Ingesting plants that contain greater quantities of needed chemicals can help to bring the body back to health. My public domain USDA database has identified many of the chemicals and food plants that might help preserve, protect, or even generate new nerves and neurites. Queried Queried intelligently, the database can be identified as the promising food pharmaceuticals to help the body heal itself. And that is why in this rant, I list some of the phytochemicals and herbs that offer hope for neuropaths who are too old to go the surgical route, like me. If I do an equally intensive review of anti-neurogenic and anti-neurogenic phytochemicals, we can better identify food pharmacy prescriptions for various neuropathies and related diseases. Some studies refer to the herb itself or the extracts of the herb. In my opinion, better studies refer to both. 
Most of the PubMed research on this topic is done on tissue culture. Cultures derived from animal cells and most often rats. And some tissue cultures called astrocytes or stellar cells in these cultures, nerve growth factor, NGF, increases the proportions of nerve cells called neurites, hence the neurogenic and generating nerves and increasing length of nerves in the brain and the body. The Japanese studied verbena, um, Paraguayan beach verbena, and their extracts barely chained the neurites in the absence of NGF in rather high doses. But in the presence of very low levels of NGF, the regrowth nerves was much more dramatic. So slowly implementing that as opposed to mega dosing on it. Acupuncture and meditation can generate NGF, which makes the neurotogenic phytochemicals more active. Thus, there is an apparent synergy between our NGF and neurotogenic foods, supplements, and phytochemicals. Neurogenic spices. Some spices contain neurogenic compounds. Angelica, anise, apple mint, basil, bay, caraway, cayenne, celery, citrus, clary sage, clove, coriander, fenugreek, ginger, horseradish, lavender, marudrum, orange peel, onion, oregano, parsley, pennyroyal, rosemary, sage, spearmint, summer savory, tarragon, thyme, turmeric, and wasabi. It is easy to say that these spices contain neurogenic compounds, but I'm trying to figure out which have more neurogenic than anti-neurogenic phytochemicals. Big Pharma is not going to do that. Clinical herbalist can. Cannabis sativa, marijuana. We have plenty of marijuana, mostly illegal, but soon to be legally grown in the nation's capital. There will be political roadblocks to using this medicinal plant grass, ain't grass generally regarded safe by the FDA, which is, sorry, I'm, I'm going to highlight that. So he said, you know, weed is grass as they call it, but it's not G-R-A-S, which is something completely different. You guys Google grass, G-R-A-S. We dare not plant it in our green pharmacy garden, even though it is very promising in neuropathy. I suspect it's still illegal in Maryland, but in my woodland rambles near the middle Potuant River, just north of my garden, I have stumbled upon three small clandestine spots. Larger plots are often booby-trapped, <laughs> making wandering through the woods dangerous. Some chronic users anecdotally claim to expand the mind. German scientists advise that long-time cannabis use may increase innate NGF. On the downside, it may increase risk of schizophrenia. There are hundreds of PubMed citations on cannabinoids and multiple sclerosis, a, um, a, a demolating disease of the central nervous system. Current pharmaceutical treatments are sometimes ineffective and may have no worthy side effects. Hence, some multiple sclerosis patients may report to cannabis anecdotally and believe to help some symptoms like bladder dysfunction, pain, spasticity, and tremors. Animal research show cannabinoids to be helpful with spasticity and tremor. Phase three clinical trials may rationalize cannabinoids for multiple sclerosis. Cannabinoid uh, is currently used for MS, spasticity, and pain. A mix of one to one delta nine uh, plus cannabinoid oil and with aromasculi introduced may have been approved in some countries, reducing traditional psychotropic cannabis actions. No tolerance, abuse, or addictive issues were found. 
Uh, Germany approved a cannabis extract in 2011 to treat refractory spasticity in multiple sclerosis, but is often used as off-label for anorexia, nausea, and neuropathic pain. The endogenous cannabinoids and andamide uh, interact with the G-protein coupled cannabinoid receptors. The CB system is emerging as a key regulator in neuronal cell fate, conferring neural protection. Many poor neurological conditions are associated with exotoxicity, oxidative stress, and neuroinflammation. Some CB molecules inhibit these events and slow or stop the neurodegeneration. Such may offer hopes in Alzheimer's disease, MS, and cerebral ischemia. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, weed is great, guys. That's why they want to suppress it so much is because it does have such a large like history of neuroregenesis. So you can smoke it up until... You're about a croak and have your neural pathways in your brain still connect. Isn't that beautiful? Various Wasn't it, was it Fauci that said that it cures uh, COVID? Yes. And recently the NIH definitely put out a, a link between uh, a study with the link of CBD curing Corona. That's why I've never gotten it ever. And I'm around two people who have claimed to have it in my house right now. And I still test negative. So anyways. Various familiar and obscure herbs. A Finnish study showed that two of 10 policemen who volunteered to be sprayed with crowd control pepper spray had increased levels of NGF in their tears. In 1999, the Japanese added several neurotogenic species, the well-known horsetail, ginseng, rue, uh, and the obscure, oh God, here we go, and the obscure Gemo Petris Rufa, Picoriza Sophoflora, Imperata Cylindrica, and Genarca Polymorpha. Uh, Pophoriza included the longest neurides, but horsetail was the best at neurogenesis, and the neurides were short. Horsetail, uh, you guys can find this when you go out on your walks in the creek. It's got um it's got those long uh, hairs on it and like little segments. It grows near near water. It's really cool. So that's a neurogenesis plant. In 2003, Japanese scientists studied the Campo medicine found to increase NGS secretion in cultured acetites. The compound contains several species, including roots of ginseng extracts. Um, let's see. Let's go into legumes. Here we are. Wake Forest scientists found that estradiol was nearly twice as active as soy phytoestrogens at stimulating NGF. Notice that the authors specify soy phytoestrogens. Most of those phytoestrogens are shared by many other edible legumes and much more pleasing to my occidental palate. I suspect that most soy-sponsored phytoestrogen studies have, will have soy specified in their title, even though uh stain and genistein is genistein i don't know what that means a japanese study concluded that genistein enhanced the ngf induced neurite outgrowth the pc12 tissue cultures um in 2011 an italian study found that soy genistein injected into the paws of diabetic rats relieved painful peripheral neuropathy and restored NGF and diabetic sciatic nerves. 
Another study showed that Dysden and Guineastein found in most edible legumes exhibited uh, cytoprotective activity that might help Parkinson's disease. As early as 1993, the University of North Carolina researchers suggested that not only Guineastein, but other inhibitors of protein tyrosine and kinases increase the length of neurites in the presence of NGF. Wow. So basically, that is saying that beans are an incredible neuroregenerative, um, have neuroregenerative properties. And that's amazing. So eat more beans, but eat less soy and eat organic. Neurotogenic aphrodisia, a California study showed that the Icarin from both horny goat weed was erectogenic and neurotogenic, at least in rats. Hmm. Maybe a little ginkgo balboa added to the horny goat weed might be worth trying for erecto and neurogenesis as ginkgo extracts may also promote peripheral nerve regeneration. The Amazonian aphrodisiac, Muria Puama, also possesses some neurotogenic phytochemicals. Finally, some genocides from Panax seem to be both neurotogenic and aphrodisiac. Melatonin, melatonin-containing food plants. In acetylserotonin, a natural chemical intermediate in the synthesis of melatonin, is a potent neurogenic. The following food plants are reported to contain more than 100 picograms of melatonin per gram. These are good for sleep, y'all. Oats, corn, rice, radish, angelica, ginger, tomato, banana, chrysanthemum, barley, mustard greens, and cabbage. Those all contain melatonin, and I assume that all melatonin-containing plants that also contain the precursor to serotonin, melatonin injection has been shown to increase NGF content. A very recent Turkish study with spinally damaged rats showed that melatonin restored NGF levels to normal after the spinal damage. My spine, on the other hand, has been slowly damaged over the decades of abuse as too much sitting, too long at the computer, gardening, and even jogging up to into my 60s. Can melatonin help me age at 83? Hmm. Mushrooms. Several mushrooms exhibit neurogenic activities. Oyster mushroom contains bioactive compounds that mimic NGF and are responsible for neurite stimulation. My friend Dr. Spellman R.H. notes that CD56 in unregulated by aqueous extracts of reishi mushroom implicated as having a role in several neuronal activities, including cell and cell adhesion, neurite outgrowth, synaptic plasticity, and learning and memory. Okay, real quick, everybody, um, I'm going to read one more thing from this, and we're going to go into a, a last one that's really interesting. I today had a coffee with lion's mane mushroom, and then I got home and I made some tea with reishi mushroom, and I took a nootropic. Now, nootropic is basically a plant that creates neurogenesis properties like we're talking about, and this combo got me crazy feeling like I was on some psychedelic psilocybin mushrooms, right? There's a feeling that you get when you start to uh, eat psilocybin and it, your body feels light and you feel like really kind of like static in your brain, like you're ready to go. And I was like, did I eat psilocybin mushrooms? I was like, no, but I did eat lion's mane mushroom and reishi tea. And it's just like these mushrooms have this type of 
compound and this type of quality to get us feeling this certain way. So I, I'm a heavy promoter of eating and drinking all these different types of mushrooms. Okay. Worms. Yes. Worms. Push a man. Push a man. <laughs> worms. 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 I have eaten worms. many wild critters, but I do not remember eating the traditional medicine earthworm. D-long. With potential for neural regeneration in China, long is part of the traditional chi uh, traditional Chinese medicine, Materia Medica, and has been long used in China to promote nerve function. The extract seems to enhance sciatic nerve regeneration and function recovering recovery following injury, suggesting the clinical potential of lupricus extract on the treatment of peripheral nerve injury in humans. Traditional Chinese medicine specialist Thomas Garan tells me that there are four species listed of worms. Uh, I'm not going to read them, but you can look them up. Uh, it is used in decaution of 510 grams per dosage as a pill or a powder or one to two grams um, as, as in a more potent extract. It also is applied externally. Studies show that it is used for a variety of inflammatory conditions from asthma to herpes to urinary tract infections. Several abstracts concern silkworm corpse, which contain phospholipids and uh, aromatic aminase that stimulate production of NGF. I do not think I will ingest these worms, but these are the studies. So I'm going to end it on that. Um, that was a, uh, an article um, of Neurogenesis uh, by James Duke. It's crazy, right? Worms have been eaten in China for medicine for centuries. Uh, it makes sense. There's a lot of like insect stuff going on lately, like cricket flower yeah. and eating uh, cicadas and all kinds of other shit like that. I I and, just uh, ordered uh, I just ordered black ant powder. It's uh it's also been used in Chinese medicine for a while. Just ordered a big bag of it. Um over on expanded un uh expanded understandings, I just interviewed the CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, where I ordered the black ant powder and then we started we talked more about it and yeah, so like in China they've been using ants and worms and and a lot of things that we would find weird, but then again, you look at, you know, these they're they're generally, you know, more high tech, their brains are functioning on a different level, they're mathematicians, they have a lot of stuff going on, they're eating ants and worms. So, I mean, like I don't know, like maybe I'm going to try it out. Yeah, I mean, I could use some of those earthworms. My peripheral vision's pretty shitty. <laughs> You can also uh, use them externally, apparently. So you can just take some worms, put them in a blender, and rub it on your skin. Didn't people used to use like leeches to like suck blood out of their skin when they had like some type of disease or something? I can't recall. Yeah, that's definitely a thing. It's also a thing that people have pet leeches, and then they have you seen videos of that? Pet no. leeches. Yeah, I don't know if you want to look it up, but like I was, I was, someone showed me that and I, I started looking at it. And yeah, like people of the South, like South and the, the American South states, people would like have pet leeches and then they'd get it out of the tank and they'd put it on their arm and they're like, here you go, buddy, time to feed. <laughs> yeah. Weird. 
Yeah, very strange. Um, well, today I'm going to be talking about Dante's Inferno. Um, yes. Esoteric Eddie talks about it in his book. So here we go. This is just Wikipedia. Uh, Inferno is Italian for hell. Is uh, the first part of the Italian writer David Alighieri's 14th century epic poem, Divine Comedy. It is followed by Purgatorio and Paradiso. The Inferno describes John Dante's journey through hell, guided by the ancient Rome, Roman poet Virgil. In the poem, hell is depicted as nine concentric circles of torment located within the earth. It is the realm of those who have rejected spiritual values by yielding to bestial appetites of violence or by perverting their human intellect to fraud or malice against their fellow men. As an allegory, the divine comedy represents the journey of the soul towards God with the inferno describing the recognition and rejection of sin. So interesting there that it says hell is depicted as nine concentric circles uh, fits very much so into some of like the Atlantean cosmology of the concentric circles, the three concentric circles of heaven or hell. And uh, the so this seems almost to me as like the second hell and nine concentric rings also could uh, denote like the southern hemisphere of the planet and the nine different um, latitudes, right? So you have latitude 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, and 90 being the south pole. And then it um, goes back into itself. Uh, yeah, Olven, and then you have the higher realms of consciousness or the higher realms of the planet, which would be the ones above that, and then Atlantis being at the top would be the North Pole, and that would be the kingdom of heaven. In a way, you could think of it that way. Um, that doesn't necessarily have to be true or is true. Uh, it's just uh, something I thought of when I was reading that. Um, so in that, there is... Uh, Dante goes through these different levels, right? And what they're referred to as the seven deadly sins. And uh, they're lust, gluttony, sloth, pride, greed, envy, and wrath. And something I didn't realize about this was that there's, <clears throat> there's also seven virtues and you use these seven virtues to destroy or to rid yourself of these seven deadly sins or to help cure these seven deadly sins in a way. Uh, and the seven virtues are humility, charity, chastity, gratitude, temperance, patience, and diligence. And temperance, because uh, I looked it up, is uh, means moderation in action or to be sober and have self-control. Um, so everything in moderation, uh, not to overindulge in any one thing or multiple things at the same time, but to try to keep a moderate aspect to, to life in general. I think, I think also probably ties in like to emotionally, right? Like, to, like literally keeping your temper in check. 
and not too uh, like you know indulgent yeah. to that anger because <clears throat> i will say yesterday i had a i had a i had a really big argument with my boss um, yeah. who I also live with. And it was like, I almost got a little out of hand, almost like up and left and just like pack my bags and got the fuck out of here. But it's because I did not have a controller check on my temperance. And I was allowing myself to get completely enthralled in anger. And I, I was just, I was going like, I was feeding into the anger that he was spilling and bro, it was, it was pretty bad. And so like it, that's i should have i should have checked myself on that dude i really should have yeah for real uh it's sometimes our emotions get the best of us and it's hard it's hard and that's why it's a virtue right it's something that we have to work at to do it's not something that's just we just do it's it's work we have to put that work in uh to rid ourselves of that anger um, and then the other word uh, in there that I had to look up a little bit was diligence, uh, just for a more precise thing. And it says to be careful or persistent with work or effort. A uh, few party members challenge his diligence as an MP. That's just a, a sentence they use. But to me, um, I, I kind of feel like this is like your intention, your uh, with your work is what intention are you putting into it? Are you putting in that good intention or are you putting in that negative intention? And if you put in that negative intention, it's going to lead to some of the other uh, deadly sins, right? It's going to lead to that wrath or it's going to lead to that greed or pride. Um, so, so I, I thought those were really super interesting uh, and uh, a little bit more about Dante's Inferno and the Nine Circles of Hell is the, the overview of it is uh, Virgil proceeds to guide Dante through the Nine Circles of Hell. The circles are concentric, representing a gradual increase in wickedness and culminating, culminating at the center of the earth where Satan is held in bondage. The centers of each circle are punished for eternity in a fashion fitting to their crimes. Each punishment is a contrapasso a symbolic instance of poetic justice for example later in the poem dante and virgil encounter fortune tellers who must walk forward with their heads on backward unable to see what is ahead because they try to see the future through forbidden means such as contrapasso functions not merely as a form of divine revenge but rather as the fulfillment of a destiny freely chosen by each soul during his or her life People who sin uh, but prayed for forgiveness before their deaths are found not in hell but in purgatory where they labor to become free of their sins. Those in hell are people who try to justify their sins and are underpentant. Dante's hell is a structural based on the ideas of Aristotle but with a certain Christian symbolisms, except exceptions and misconstructions of Aristotle's text and a further supplement from Cicero's De Oficus. Virgil reminds Dante the character of those pages from where the ethics tell of three conditions contrary to heaven's will and rule, incontinence, vice, and brute bestiality. Cicero, for his part, had divided sense between violence and fraud, 
by conflating Cicero's violence with Aristotle's bestiality and his fraud with malice. I don't think that's bestiality. That's bestiality. What's uh? I'm gonna look this word up. Bestiality. Yo, real quick, let me let me jump in here. Um, some visualizations that are coming to my mind when we talk about concentric circles, right? You ha- what that is is like you have a core, and then you have the permeating cir- uh, uh, circles that go outside of that. Uh, you can imagine uh, a, a clear pond, and then you drop yeah. a rock into it, and it creates those concentric circles of ripples outside. Yeah. And so a lot of it, to me, conceptually kind of sounds like energetically speaking like our core is us and at the core uh, energy of that and then outside of that is our auric field and then those those sins can be categorized into that and then you can replace the 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 toxicity of our energetic aura with the the opposing to to lighten it and clear it out and so yes. that's that's kind of a con, like a visualization I get when we talk about these, you know, Dante's Inferno, you know, it being like Satan's there in the middle and he's bound by these sins and he's bound by this energy that permeates out. And then but then in order to be enlightened and then to spread the aura and to get it, you know, to holy again or whatever you want to call it. But that's that's kind of the visualization I get with that when I'm you know when I when I saw saw the concentric circles and I'm like talking about energy and the 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 nine angles of you know latitude you know it's like it's all permeates within itself. Yeah, man. Uh, so that word is is bestility, uh, bestiality, and it it is what bestiality uh i thought it was spelled more like b-e-a but it's uh b-e-s-t-i-a-l-i-t-y means sexual relations between a human being and a lower animal so there you go uh so or fallen angels with yeah humans possibly so yeah i mean if you want to so I don't like that animal part in there, and I don't want to say like other people are animals or something like that. I think that's disrespectful. But, um, but I mean, if you want to get into it in that sense, then yeah, it could very well be like you know, it'd be like you know, the you know, demigods having sex with the lower you know, creatures yeah. of earth, which are humans, and then they they you know, they do that. I mean, it could be that, exactly. or it could be a goat, you know, that could be bestiality, or it could be these gods having sex and, and mating with, with the human animal or that the bipedal humanoid or whatever, you know, <laughs> it gets sticky when you start saying that, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but so then, um, Dante encounters, uh, okay. So these are incontinence, violence, bestility, and fraud and malice sinners punished for incontinence, also known as wantonness, the lustful, the gluttonous, the hoarders and wasters, and the wrathful and sullen all demonstrate weakness in controlling their appetites, desires, and natural urges. According to Aristotle's ethics, incontinence is less condemnable than malice or bestiality. 
and therefore these centers are located in four circles of upper hell, circles two through five. These centers endure lesser torments than those consigned to lower hell, located within the walls of the city of Dis, for committing acts of violence and fraud, the later of which involves, as Dorothy L. Sayers writes, abuse of the specifically human faculty of reason. The deeper levels are organized into one circle for violence, circle seven, and two circles for fraud, circles eight and nine. As a Christian, Dante adds circle one, limbo, to upper hell, and circle six, heresy, to lower hell, making nine circles in total, incorporating the vestibule of the futile. This leads to hell containing ten main divisions, This 9 plus 1 equals 10 structure is also found within the Purgatorio and Paradiso. Lower Hell is further subdivided. Circle 7, Violence, is divided into 3 rings. Circle 8, Fraud, is divided into 10 Boigi. And Circle 9, Treachery, is divided into 4 regions. Thus, Hell contains in total 24 divisions. And then it goes into the different circles of hell and everything. And so what um, what Eddie is saying in the book is that this whole idea of hell that we get in the biblical narrative or in our conscious now, because it's not really talked about like this in the Bible at all, uh, comes from Dante's Inferno. From this being a popularized book, and people reading it, they concluded that this is must be what hell is and what hell is like. So even now you have contemporary Christians believing in this concept of hell, which is not even biblical. It's just this whole idea that has been constructed through, uh, I guess, what you could say is media, right? It's this media production of a, of, of a book or whatever, or movies and it's been in video games now. And so now it's even perpetuating. And so this concept of hell has kind of stayed with us through time. And now we, we act as if that's the truth. And it was just a book. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> exactly. This, the concept of hell created by the Christian narrative is also a form, in my opinion, uh, a fear-based, you know, mind control, right? To be able to have something in order to string along to make you be fearful of, so then you'll give the church money and you'll follow more. And and if you don't, then you will repent in hell. But in my opinion, when I visualize it, even Dante is not referring to the center of the earth. He's referring to the center of the mind and the lower vibrational part of your mind so you can be crapped in the hell within your own mind and that's what it is when you're permeated by all of this negative you're going to be trapped in a mental hell and that's not enlightenment right you will be trapped at a lower vibrational state you won't yep. be able to see and receive all of the downloads of the akashic or the collective consciousness that is real and that should be feared to be stuck in those places because you will not have the best experience that you're meant to have if you're stuck in that hell. And yeah, also uh, I would add to that. Like if you're really scared of these different things, then it's because you don't have the virtues to defeat them. And if you want to have the virtues to defeat them, then you need to learn humility, 
charity, chastity, gratitude, temperance, diligence, and patience. And if you have those, then you have nothing to fear at all because it's already within you to show these characteristics, you know? So, um, yeah, I agree that it's very good to put into that perspective, Roman, of, of, you know, yourself and your, and your kind of your own spiritual guidance in a way. It's not to be taken so literally, like it's like very, a physical place, you know, as much as it is a mental state of being and, trying to um to balance between that which is possibly one of the hardest parts of life unfortunately exactly exactly it's definitely one of the hardest parts of life if it was easy we'd all be amazing people (laughs) there would be no war violence or anything like that in the world but unfortunately there is so uh well that's it for rfta news so Here we go. We're going to get into the interview with Edward Kano, a.k.a. Esoteric Eddie. I hope you guys enjoy and wake Wake up. up. Hey, everybody. Thank you for tuning into today's show. We are rising from the ashes. And we, as the Fire Tribe, will rise. Awaken our eyes beyond what is seemingly laid upon us. We can extend our consciousness to the further ends of our cosmic understanding. If you enjoy our show and you like the content that we create, make sure to like and subscribe. Share with your friends. Hello, everybody. Yes, please, please, please do. Also, follow us on Instagram at RFTA Podcast. If you have any questions or concerns, you can email us at risingftashes at yahoo.com. I'm Danny Minaki Dan. And I'm the homie Romy. Hello. What's good, homie? <laughs> what up, what up? Today we got uh, we are a... good today. Are you gonna go or what? <laughs> today we're here with Eduardo Kano. Is it Kano or Kano? Uh, it's Kano. Well, it's Kano, but uh, I pronounce it Kano. 
uh, also known as Esoteric Ed- Eddie. Uh, he wrote the book, The Lucifer Mystery Revealed. Uh, so we're going to go deep into that today and talk about Lucifer and the mysteries and who Lucifer is and the different conundrums that we get caught up in with history on Satan, the devil, and Lucifer. And so I guess that's my first question is, are they the same? Are they different? Is there differences? And what are those differences? Absolutely. Yeah, there definitely is a difference. And uh, in the book, I touch on Satan here and there. But the the main concept of the, of the book is Lucifer. And even in the occult, it's uh, it's pretty well understood that Satan and Lucifer are two different things. Because the occult, obviously, they... Uh, admire Lucifer and the attributes of him being the intelligent light bringer. And they kind of almost see it as like a, um, what's the word as a, as kind of like a diss, you know, or kind of see it to Lucifer to couple him with Satan because Satan is this disheveled creature, you know, the, and, uh, some of the occultists say like, um, the Freemasons or, or, or Levi that, it's kind of a paradox to call Lucifer the Prince of Darkness when his very name is Light Bringer. <laughs> yeah, so, that's true, huh? So even philosophically speaking, they are two different things. But even um, you know, in theosophy, they are two different things. Or not theosophy, sorry, in theology. In the theology of it, there are two different people. But as I point out in the book, the reason why they're, uh, they are different is because first and foremost, Lucifer does not exist. He was constructed through misunderstandings, through um, contextual misunderstandings, and I'm sure we're going to get deeper into that. And so was Satan. Satan actually did, did not originally exist as a one uh, character that was later formed out of, out of also misunderstandings of the original word that was used for Satan. So do you think any of them existed? Satan, Lucifer, or the devil? I don't. I don't. I think uh, they were at the at the very best archetypes that have power now because of you know the power that archetypes have in the collective unconscious. But as I point out in the book, I think that the ideas of them um, come from very ancient deities that may or may not have been real, and those are of course the Anunnaki. Mm, the Anunnaki. Do you think uh, that Lucifer could be a representation of the moon and uh, Satan the representation of the sun? I think we can definitely make those, um, you know, make those statements. I'm sure there's evidence for that. But speaking specifically about Lucifer in the book and what I've found, he for sure or it for sure coincides with Venus. That's for sure. And Venus is often, you know, seen... Um, coincided with the moon and just nighttime and darkness. Association. Yeah, Yeah, associated. So so in my perspective, I see Lucifer as the moon and then Venus as his consort, like Asherah or something to that effect or uh, Aphrodite or whatever you want to call her, whatever of the female goddesses uh, that, that that star represents yeah. and then lucifer with the lu and luna with the lu lunar and lust and all kinds of lu words uh that contain that that suffix in it kind of connotes to me the moon and then when you see shah 
like a shaman yeah. or the god Shamash. Yeah. Uh, it usually denotes the sun. And then uh, I think uh, one of the words is pronounced like Shatan, right? So you yeah. get the S-H-A in there again, and then you got sun. Uh, so then you're, then you're right back, you know, and then Shem. Shem is also another one of those things that's really close to that. Shemer, Sumer is kind of like Shimmer, Shumer. Uh, so there's there's all that kind of, when you look at language, it you kind of see those different references. And so I often wonder, because I think when you read biblical uh, stuff and other religious texts, there's three ways to decipher all of them. There's like a surface level, initiate level, and then the elite level of knowledge. And so when you go through those different mystery schools, like for the people on the surface, they didn't know a lot, couldn't read or write. But then once you get initiated, then you start to learn more. And then the upper echelon kind of, then they know all the, everything. So that's, that's kind of the way I, I think about it though. But, but you say, nay, you got some other stuff for me then? Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, we can get into it, but uh, I like the etymological breakdown that you, uh, that you go towards. I mean, that stuff is deep, man. I mean, I've been listening to your, to your guys' stuff and we've had a conversation before. Yeah. Of course, you know, the box saga that I'm sure your audience is familiar with now is all about language or it's, it stems from language and how right. language has really been the carrier of, um, you know, humanity's past. But that stuff is trip, man, like et- etymology and how you can take any word and break it down and bring it down to its root. But I want to say on that subject, it's it's fascinating because whoever gave us language, you know, um, it's almost as if it was it had a basic code and it was just frequency to begin mm-hmm. with frequency. And then that basic code could be used to transform uh, and to, could be used to be transformed into other languages, other frequencies. So um, I think that uh, there's something to that, you know, etymology and vibration and just the science with, uh, behind language. And whoever gave us that could, or, you know, it's their creation, so they could use it to, to decipher any language, decipher any writing, but uh, we're not that advanced. So we have that, you know, barrier between each other. Yeah, I know. What we're do you think came first was writing or, or speak spoken language? Do you think like writing came first? Or do you think spoken language came first? Because there's something too with the vibration and the resonance with the shape. You know, I think they're they're obviously interrelated in some sort. So I'm, I'm, you know, it's like chicken or the egg. What what was it? Writing yeah. or was it like the word level? Word? The word level is L E and then a V and then an E L. Like somebody, yeah. come on! Wow, yeah, yeah. How, how do you do that? <laughs> Perfect yeah. palindrome. There's definitely something there. Um, yeah, no, definitely like the chicken and the egg thing. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it was probably both. You know, so probably both at the same time. If anything, but damn, that that's a uh, something for for uh, something deep for sure. Uh, so I, yeah, I know we're going to get into Sumerian and stuff. And, uh, when you look at their words, they use like dots in between like a suffix, you know, and then add something to the end of that. And then a lot of like their, their cities or, uh, places, their abodes, they call them, I believe, uh, when it's dedicated to a certain God, there's like usually a E in front of it. So like E den denotes like a place of God. And, uh, and then same with like, I'm not sure about Ur. 
as much. Uh, but I know that E does have a lot of uh, context to that. But uh, but like there's Ur too, and or there's another one that's like Urgrat, Urgrat, or something like that. Yeah. And uh, so there's a lot of a lot of that, and so you see a lot of like the syllable breakdowns in the Sumerian language, and it's very interesting because it seems like if that was the beginning then then where did that come from because sumeria seems to go back the farthest in in known history yeah yeah no definitely um the etymology and language of stuff is is deep but as far as lucifer i mean i can break this thing down and it's it's kind of uh where all of this started for me because before i wrote the book I just simply asked myself, you know, where did the idea of Lucifer even come from? Where did the word even come from? And what I found was that the world um, primarily was introduced to the idea of Lucifer through the King James Bible, the English version. Mm. And um, in the English version, the, the King James version, uh, Lucifer was only used once. And it was used in Isaiah 14, 12. In the famous Lucifer verse, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, so on and so forth. But uh, if we trace that back, we find that the English was translated um, from the Latin, the Latin translated from the Greek, and then the Greek translated from the original Hebrew. So if we go backwards, we can find out how we got the word Lucifer in the English version. So Lucifer is actually a Latin word. In the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the uh, the Bible, Lucifer was actually used a few different times throughout the Bible, but every time it was used, it was used as a lowercase adjective um, comprising of uh, two words, Luz and Fere, meaning light and bearer, light bearer. And um, the, the Latin tra- translated correctly from the Greek, and where we would see Lucifer today in the Greek translations, we would see the word phosphorus, which means um, light or, or to be uh, to bear light. And then in the uh, which is also a correct translation of the Hebrew, where we would see Lucifer today in the Hebrew, we would see Halel ben Shahar. Now, Halel ben Shahar means um, shining one, son of Shahar. And we're going back to the Shah, the Shahar. Yeah, see. Uh, and, and what is being and so when Isaiah in the English uh, translation says, "How art thou fallen, um, Lucifer, son of the morning?" That's saying, um, you know, Halel ben Shahar, and um, it was from the Latin lowercase Lucifer that the translators, you know, hyped it up or fanaticized it, you know, either deliberately or or unknowingly to an uppercase noun lucifer and now we started looking at it as if like this was a character and there's some truth to that so halal ben shahar when we um deconstruct that we find a character but before we get there we got to understand that you know before judaism was a structured thing pre you know judaism you know, people were polytheistic you know, they believed in the old Canaanite religions of where there was a pantheon of gods all headed by El. And then there was Baal and then all these other dudes. And there was a deity by the name of Shahar. And uh, we find him in what are called the, the Baal or Baal cycle text. We uh, uncovered this, I think, in uh, the 40s or, or something or something like that. Mm. But the Baal cycle text, we have these physical texts and um, they're. They primarily center around, you know, Baal and his endeavors, 
And there's one little story in there where, where he steps down from his throne and he's kind of like, you know, it's not, it's not like a big deal, but he's just kind of saying to himself and the other gods, he doesn't feel like ruling anymore. So the other gods are kind of scurrying, trying to find somebody to rule in his place. And uh, Shahar is there. And then Shahar's son, this dude named Athtar, steps up and he just says like, well, I'm up for I'm up for the responsibility. But then it's later decided that, you know, he's not fit to rule. So they say, nah, never mind. You're not fit to rule. And then Baal just comes back and sits back on his throne. So um, can I can I can I stop you there real go quick? Ahead. Yeah. Because doesn't that sound a lot like uh, Enki and Ra or Marduk, yeah. Enki and yeah. Marduk uh, f- from like the Sumerian tales? Like it's uh, Marduk is always asking like, when is it my turn to rule? When is it my turn to rule? And it's like, you have to wait. You have to wait. It's not your turn yet. It sounds very similar to that same that same story. Yeah. And we can say that a lot of those characters are based on the Sumerian uh, pantheon. So... I'm sure there is some correlation there with Baal and Marduk uh, because the Canaanite deities were heavily worshipped by the Babylonians who Marduk was like the chief deity of. Uh, but uh, so in, in the in the Baal cycle text, we see Astar show up in that little instance and Shahar. Um, but what makes this all more apparent is that Astar and Hillel the word Hillel or Phosphorus or Lucifer in the Latin sense of it also meant to denote Venus because Athtar's symbol was Venus. And Athtar, although he was a male deity at that time when the Baal cycle texts were written, which I think were around 1400 BC, he actually stemmed from a from an earlier ver, um, female version. So Athtar is actually a reimagined Astarte or Ashtoreth, as uh. we know, is Inanna. From Sumeria. Is that where the word asterisk comes from, too? Like, because that's kind of like her star, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much, right? Like, she's got the seven pointed star, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Could be, man. I just thought of that right now. Uh, You also say that uh, another word that I was like, oh, shit, was hallelujah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, hallelujah has the same root word as hallel. So, hallel, hallelujah. Uh, they both have that root word, a uh, 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 hell or like hell to shine. Um, yeah. Yeah. I wrote down hell, L, Lou, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to, to decouple there with etymology for sure. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> so Isaiah, Isaiah being the prophet that he was and being, you know, the yeah, the prophet and, and, and the scholar that he was understood these these old you know Canaanite stories and understood uh, the mythology, the celestial mythology of Venus, because Venus, even in its planetary mythology, is the light bringer because Venus is the brightest um, planet in the in the morning sky before the sun. So we see Venus before we see the sun, but every morning the sun outshines Venus in our skies. So in the ancient times, there's all these. Uh, entendres and metaphors and Isaiah simply took all that and threw it in on top of the on top of his metaphor or on top of his um you know verse but Isaiah in that verse 1412 he was talking directly to a Babylonian king so he was he was saying all this towards a Babylonian king who we think was probably Sennacherib so he was using all this metaphor this poetic metaphor talking down to this king saying that you are like 
Halal Ben Shahar. You are like this Athtar, this measly God who thinks that he's going to outshine uh. Yahweh, but you're not. You're just like Venus. You might think you're going to have, you're, you know, you're shining, but sure enough, the sun or God is going to come and take your place. Yeah. Yeah. But from, from, from then on, you know, it just becomes this pop culture mess. Uh, but before we go forward, um, do you guys have any questions or comments? Well, why why do you think there is the main motive behind that, you know, influence into pop culture? Like what what what's what's the point, right? Like, I mean, I guess you gotta have something to demonize and to use as fear mongering, but is there is there something else in your opinion? Yeah. Well, in the book, I tried to write the book to be um as academic as possible. I mean, I grew up on all of the the classics, you know, like Illuminati, reptilian agendas, and and all the all of that stuff. So when I first got into esoteric knowledge, occult knowledge, I mean, it blew my mind. I was in uh, middle school and high school, and I was a dude running around like telling everybody about the reptilians and everything, um, and all of that. So I mean, and I say that to say that you know we can get deep and we can we can speculate, you know, the the elite and the dark forces that might be at hand here, but academically speaking. In the book, I kind of show how it progressed in, in just in that way in the church and the occult. And in early Christianity, one of the first people to start looking at the Isaiah verse and seeing the, the uppercase L in Lucifer and seeing that it was a noun and taking that and misinterpreting it was uh, Oregon of Adamant, uh, Oregon of Adamantius, or sorry, Oregon Adamantius. Um, that's his last name. So he was one of the early church fathers. He was born in uh, 180 of the common era around then. And uh, he was one of the first people to see this Isaiah verse and, and wrote about it in, in a book called De Principis. De Principis. And he says, I got a quote here, that we are taught as follows by the prophet Isaiah regarding another opposing power who formerly was Lucifer. He might show by this that he had been a that he had been at one time in heaven and had enjoyed a share in that light which all the saints participate. So Oregon of Adamantius was kind of the first one to see this in the early Christian era when the church was barely forming and said, yo, there's something here. Who is this Lucifer guy? Like we never heard about him. But uh Oregon was pretty psychedelic and he was later deemed as a heretic because he held on to the idea that fallen angels were corporeal or physical, had physical bodies, which later the church deemed as a heretical idea. So he was actually imprisoned for a super long time and then later let out and kind of just died as a disheveled old guy. And speculating so, that maybe they threw him away because they are in fact the fallen angels. <laughs> Hey, we can take it there, man. We can take it there. In the book, <laughs> I talk about how the Inquisition played a huge part in the Luciferian doctrine. And you know what? The funny thing is the church had a self-fulfilling prophecy. In the book, I scrutinize both the church and the occult and say that it's both equally their fault that Lucifer exists. And if anything, it's probably more so the church's fault that Lucifer exists because they took the idea, fanaticized it, you know, fanaticized it, whatever the word is. But um but even further than that, they, when they started the Inquisition, it started like killing people, burning them and murdering them. Um, Gnosticism was re revived and the people like the Cathars started seeing the church as Satan incarnate. So they were like, oh man, like the church is Satan. The church, 
they're the evil ones. So they started to believe in the Luciferian doctrine and, and started to uh, uphold that Lucifer might have been, you know, in favor of us. Yeah, when I recently looked up the Cathars to see like who they were, uh, because I was trying to find out where Catholicism comes from, and it was uh, started by the Cathars who were like Gnostic and also were practicing like this Christianity type religion. Uh, and then they kind of combine the two, and then that's where you get the Catholic religion from. Huh. Uh, but one one of the interesting things that you talk about in the book is the Aryan doctrine and Saint Lucifer. Yeah. And so I was wondering if you go into that a little bit because that's I I had no idea that there was a saint named Lucifer for one, and then uh, the Aryan doctrine. As soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, the fucking Aryans. The Tartarians, you know, the all that yeah. shit. So, yeah, sure. Atlanteans. Okay. Yeah, that too. Let me see here. So, Saint Lucifer. So, okay, the Bible, the Latin Vulgate, was translated by uh, Jerome. He was commissioned by the Church in the fourth century. So, in the during the fourth century, there was also this new schism that was happening, and it was called Arianism. And Arianism is basically the belief that Jesus was a separate creation um, apart from God and that he was simply donned by God to carry out his mission. And anti-Arianism is saying that, no, Jesus was a special creation and was God incarnate and that nobody could ever be Christ again. He is an individual. But uh, the Constantinian dynasty, you know, along with their priests, were probably pushing him to do so took on the idea of Arianism because it made it easy for them to justify their divine right to rule. They were saying, you know, Jesus was just another person. He was donned by God. So therefore there could be another Christ to, to be donned by God. And that's what they did. They, they donned themselves, you know, Christ on earth. But uh, there was a dude by the name of St. Lucifer. His name was Lucifer. Of uh, He was a bishop of Cagliari in Italy during the fourth century when all this Arianism was happening and, and Jerome was translating uh, the, the Greek Bible and the Hebrew Bible into the Latin Vulgate. And um, all the anti-Arians were, were banished and, and exiled along with St. Lucifer. Lucifer was actually heading the anti-Arian movement and he was exiled. And while he was exiled from Rome or in that area, he wrote some polemical letters, one of them being uh, the apostate of kings. And he wrote directly to Constantinus II, one of the sons of Constantine, saying, basically, um, you might think that you're not doing anything evil because God hasn't struck you down yet, but eventually God will straight strike you down. And later on, the Constantinian dynasty died out, and then a new ruler came, and he was kind of sympathetic towards the anti-Aryans. So he uh, allowed Lucifer and some of his followers to come back. And but there was another debate happening where um, Lucifer, Saint Lucifer, was kind of like bashing all the bishops who sold out during the Aryan uh, movement, the Aryan period, and saying, "You guys were sellouts, and now you're trying to come back and be like, oh, we love Christ; He's the one and only.'" And then. Um, Basically, the, the Arians were, were, were flipped it on him and said, well, Christ is the only one who can forgive. So we're going to go to him for forgiveness, not you. And, and St. Lucifer pretty much said F you to all the sellouts. And because of this, he was kind of disgraced and shamed. And um, he was never officially made a saint. But in his hometown, he is a saint where there are little chapels or, or statues 
uh, made of him. And during this whole time, Jerome, the dude who wrote the Latin Vulgate, where we get the word Lucifer from, was was a witness of all of this and wrote about it in a text called The Dialogue Against the Luciferians, where he talks about St. Lucifer's fall in, in disgrace because of uh-huh. his bashing. So some people speculate, and it's a good speculation, that even Jerome was throwing another entendre on top of Isaiah's Venus and Astar entendre. To create, wow, that's to like almost create like this Lucifer figure, huh? Yeah, I mean, it was fostering. What I I don't say this in the book, but but it's something that I realized after the book. Um, Lucifer is actually one of the more newest newer archetypes that have been mm. created in the human subconscious, the human collective subconscious, and I, it holds power as uh, any archetype can when it's held by so many people in high regard. Ever is uh yeah aggregate well like to me personally i, I kind of like my spiritual beliefs at this point are that like you know almost all theological you know deities or beings are aggregorical you know and like because the the energy i feel that is creation is like it's just like such a big energy it's just like it's just light man but yeah. uh do you think is that saint lucifer uh is the lucifer that some of like the occultic occultists uh, are referencing to, or they ref- like what, like, cause you brought that up earlier. Um, and so that, and then you brought that story up, which is fascinating too. And I'm like, wow, I wonder if that's, that's kind of the same thing or uh, that Baphomet. Okay. Um, I, to my understanding, I don't think they are directly referencing him. I think a lot of people didn't even, don't even know about him and kind of just glance over him in history. But with the occult, where we start seeing Lucifer um, be admired, I mean, there's there's a lot of people that, you know, in the early uh, occult days that were starting to bring that name into fruition. But the number one dude who definitely popularized it was Eliphas Levy. Eliphas Levy was the dude who was responsible for the Baphomet image. And I actually, with the eyebrows? The guy with the eyebrows? I know. No. I don't way, know. Way before, dude. Way before. I think you're talking Not about that. Sorry. Not oh, Anton no. Levy. No, not Anton Levy. Oh, okay. no. <laughs> Elif- Eliphas Levy. So he was a 19th century French occultist. And I have a documentary out uh, on my YouTube um, about his life and works. And it's it's kind of blew my mind because um, Baphomet, right? We see Baphomet everywhere. That's, that's popularized in pop culture as Lucifer is. And um, one day I just decided like, well, what, what is this? So I found that you know, this guy, Eliphas Levy, drew that image, and I'll get into him in a little bit, but uh, I found um, that there's only one book as of right now in English that, that is a biography on his life. There's a few in French and uh, German, I think, and I found this, I found the book in my local library at the time, and uh, let's just say I, I have it now. Uh, nice. <laughs> I had to, but uh, yeah, so I so I read this book, man, and it's his life is fascinating. He's a cool dude. I at least check out the documentary I made. Not even trying to plug that. Like this dude deserves a lot of recognition because he was actually a Catholic and he grew up in, in the parish and and had a, a promising future as a Catholic priest. But his ideas on on Catholicism and the life and life in God were just so psychedelic and, and hippie that that he couldn't follow in line and. You know, they gave him an ultimatum and said, look, we'll give you like because he was a very pious dude. You know, he, he had a strong faith and, and they gave him ultimatum and said, look, dude, we'll give you, you know, 
position as a priest and all this stuff, you just stop with this hippie stuff, you know? But he said, no, nah, man, I got to stay true to me. So he ended up be- <laughs> ended up becoming homeless. And he was later jailed a couple of times by the French government for his writings on God and, and feminism. He was like an early feminist too. And he ended up having like this crazy revelation when he was in jail once where an angel came and took him. And he had a whole uh, very interesting life. And um, But he wrote some of the most important occult books to this day. And he's so important that Helena Blavatsky, as we know, you know, one of the co-founders of theosophy said that Levi, 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 however you want to say it, Levi was her prime source of, uh, you know, knowledge. And also Crowley, right? Elias Crowley felt that he was the incarnate of Levi. That's how important he was to the occult. Wow. But he was not like people think he is. You know, if you were to judge him from the Baphomet image, you think he's like this Crowley-ish kind of dude, but he's the exact opposite of Crowley. He's all about love and and the brotherly communion and, and God in a in a you know metaphysical way. But when he drew the Baphomet, he drew it as a, a symbol to represent duality, right? Because you see aspects of man and beast, spirit and darkness. So he didn't mean it to be this demonic, hermetic. satanic thing. It's hermetic. It's it, and that's how he meant it to be perceived. And um, but do, uh, with, you, go ahead. Oh, oh I was going to ask. Do, do you think? And this is kind of like side railing. I do apologize. Uh, do you think hermeticism is like the OG occultic like understanding and occultic um, way of being? I mean, it seems like all things point to hermeticism when you go back. I mean. It, to 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 where hermeticism was created which i'm still unclear yeah it's something i'm a bit still unclear about too i mean i i <laughs> of course in our studies it always pops up right hermeticism always pops up and it's something yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm planning on diving head on because it's all these esoteric subjects and occult subjects require so much dedication to fully understand you know that's why it took me two years just to fully understand lucifer it took me two years to write the book just to finally understand Lucifer. But Hermeticism, I think, is definitely one of the OGs. Um, but I think uh, there's some there's there's stuff before that that's missing for sure. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, we, as, as, as of for the modern age, for sure, the modern age, yeah, Hermeticism is the OG. I'm not, uh, I'm not sure where you're going to go next, Ed, Eddie. Uh, yeah. But uh, can you describe where like this idea of of hell came from uh in, in your book you kind of relate that dante's inferno played a big part in kind of creating this idea of of hell and the seven levels of hell and everything like that yeah i'm not the authority on that for sure but i can touch on it a little bit and, and the reason being is the book is uh, about Lucifer, right? It's about Lucifer. And I do touch on Satan a little bit, but early on in the book, I make that distinction that like this book is, is going to be about Lucifer because Satan requires a whole another book to do it justice. But I do touch on Dante's Inferno because Dante's Inferno and uh, Milton's Paradise played a huge role in, in how Lucifer would be popularized. But Dante's Inferno, to my understanding, was which uh, was written... Uh, let me see if I can get the date. Well, date's not important, but Dante's Inferno was written and it uh, depicted some of the most um, detailed depictions of hell by far. I mean, 
Even the Bible doesn't go into detail about hell as Dante's Inferno does. But the thing Mm -hmm. about Dante, Dante was a very poetic dude, and some of his first writings were actually about his crush, this uh, chick named Beatrice. He just was completely enamored by her, and she actually um, makes appearances um, as a fictional character in Dante's Inferno. But Dante, during his time, he was a French dude as well. Um, The Roman church was taking over where he was from, uh, let me see where I forgot where he was from, but wherever he was from, you know, the Roman church was kind of trying to take over, but uh, the locals were kind of opposing that and resisting. And then um, him and some other people organized and decided to go to Rome to kind of like see what was going on, to try to like get a reconnaissance uh, kind of to see what's going on. And while they were gone, um, the other, or he was from Florentine, the other Florentines who were down with the Roman church um, decided to group with them and then kind of exile uh, Dante and the other people. There was a split there between the Florentines. They were called the the White and the Black Guelphs. I forgot which one he um, was a part of. But when while he was exiled, he had this psychedelic, you know, experience pretty much, and, and decided to write mm. Dante's Inferno. And, and Dante's Inferno was kind of a social commentary about that whole experience and what he realize heaven and hell really are and he kind of snuck little you know metaphors in there about the roman church and the government and and the things that were happening around him in his life so even though he goes into major detail about hell it wasn't like he went there or anything that was just his like psychedelic artistic expression about what it might be so again we have this uh, this occurrence where some person you know comes up with this fanatical almost fictional thing or or text or concept and then it becomes popularized and even the church was so impressed by it and and affected by it that they kind of took it as like for real so some the idea Mm -hmm. of purgatory and some of the ideas of hell that the church preaches about today stem from dante's inferno but it was all just a psychedelic expression of his life uh, it's it's interesting too because like I think because I I'm always a straight conspiratorial right <laughs> yeah me and, too, uh, you know you know and it's hard sometimes to try to rein it in but uh but now when we have things like predictive programming and you know social engineering through our sources of media right we have TV social media you know things like that radio um but back in the day they didn't have that. They had books and they had plays, all right? Or, you know, they, they had different ways of like of what they needed to do in order to get messages out to people. And so I think a lot of these poems and books and novels that we look at, you know, even talking like Plato and, and all of these like um, pieces of literary work, I'm wondering, you know, it's like they could make up a story like, but do we even know if Dante existed? You know, that whole, that whole realm, like Shakespeare and all that stuff. It's, mm-hmm. So that's, that's fascinating too, to me. What's your opinion on yeah. that? Yeah. Well, I touch on Shakespeare actually in the book and Rosicrucianism and that idea, but um, man, yeah, that, that there's some truth to that. Like for example, the book of revelation by um, John, um, it's pretty, un- pretty understood now that at least the first half of it is uh, talking about Rome the Roman government and kind of like sneaking in some information. They're kind of warning people about this government that is being formed, that is going to attempt a takeover in the future. So the first half of revelation is him codifying what's going on in his life. And then the other half of revelation is about 
what that system that is being formed during his life is going to attempt to do in the future, which is the New World Order idea. So there could be some truth to that with uh, Dante's Inferno and other texts. And, and time is cyclical, so history keeps repeating itself. So Ugh. when people go back to that and go, oh, look, that's what's happening now. Well, in a way, yeah, a little bit different of details, but it's not necessarily prophecy. It's just cyclical nature of time and things reliving themselves again and again and again. And so we get like these same concepts of rise and fall of civilizations and everything else like that. Yeah, I agree. I kind of say that the Bible is a blueprint of uh, how things can happen. Doesn't it's not how things need to happen or should happen, but it's a blueprint of like, if we don't wake up to it, then that's how things are just going to end up going. Yeah, man. Uh, yeah. What what um, what else did you uh, did you have? Because you said you had like a <clears throat> like a presentation yeah. type of thing. So, did you want? Yeah. Is there something specific you want to get into next? Yeah. Let me see here. So, just wanted to make sure that we understood that um, within the occult, you know, Eliphaz Levi Levi. Um, was kind of the first to, to start popularizing Lucifer and, and kind of playing with the idea. He knew that he knew that Lucifer was a mistranslation. But the thing about the occultists, most of them, most of the classical occultists knew that it was a mistranslation. But they just loved the philosophy behind it, the idea behind it, because they knew something was there. Like Blavatsky, she knew that something was there, and she talked about um, the idea of the Atlanteans and how mm-hmm. she 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 knew that there was lost history, lost knowledge, and a lost civilization. So the cult started to look at the idea of Lucifer and um, the idea that we lost knowledge and that there had to have been beings who partook in our creation and that some of them may or may not have wanted to impart knowledge onto us and other, you know, others didn't want them to do that. But so it starts with, uh, you know, Levy and then goes on and, and so forth. But, um, we now know that Lucifer originally in the Isaiah context what never existed. Lucifer didn't ex- exist in the Isaiah context of it. But where we start to really see a real Lucifer character exists is in the Garden of Eden story. Uh, yeah. So that's not Satan, that's Lucifer? Well, <clears throat> again, we get we have to we have to be you know, careful in how we read it, you know, like how Zechariah Sitchin, um, Zechariah Sitchin, I'm sure we all are familiar with him, you know, the dude who wrote the the 12th, the, the Earth Chronicles, who brought us the Anunnaki mm-hmm. theory and all that in the 70s. He's the first dude that brought it up to, to my um, mind and made me realize that Hebrew, Hebrew is, is a very specific language in the, in the way that it uses words. It doesn't use words just haphazardly like we might do in English. Every word it uses in the Bible is, is carefully crafted to be put there. And a lot of the words have multiple meanings. So where we would see serpent today, we, don't, we would see nakash in the Garden of Eden story in Hebrew. And nakash could mean, yes, serpent, but more particularly in the esoteric version of it, could also mean somebody who's wise like a serpent. So... What's being said is it isn't a snake. There wasn't a snake just walking around, you know, trying to sell apples. Slith- was, slithering around. Yeah, slithering around. <laughs> it was a Nakash. It was there was a, it was a little dig at whoever that character was. So um if there is a Lucifer, I think 
that the occultists and, the, and their uh, admiration for the Garden of Eden being is more close to Lucifer than the Isaiah verse. Because when we start to take a look at the Garden of Eden story, which has to do with mankind's creation and us being imparted knowledge for the first time ever, thus, you know, elevating our consciousness, it's that Nakash, whoever that is, that is is Lucifer, if there ever was one. The the they them of the gods. <laughs> yeah. And I, I make no no uh you know, no secret of who it is in the book. I mean, I go straight into chapter three out of six chapters, who that person is. And most of us in the truth community can guess who that is. And of course, the garden, the snake in the Garden of Eden is Enki. Enki, yep. Um, I, so I, you have this part right here in the, I wanted to read it. Do you care if I, if I quote from, from your book? No, go ahead. It says, uh, to, to better understand all of this, we must unravel the foundation that made it possible for Christianity to form. Going backwards in time, Christianity spawned from Judaism, which came from a plethora of old world cultures, such as those of the Canaanites, Egyptians, Hittites, and Persians, and all of them eventually leading back to the oldest known culture, the Sumerians. How we know about this is due to a group of scholars, Samuel, Noah, Kramer, Sir Charles, Leonard, Woolley, Austin, Henry, Laird, and more, who excavate the Middle East from the 1800s through the 1900s. From them, we know that Sumer was initially settled between 4500 and 4000 BCE by non-Semitic, non-Sumerian-speaking people. They are known as proto uh Euphratians or Ubaidians mm -hmm. uh, because of the village of Al-Ubaid where their remains were recovered. They were civilized people with forms of agriculture, infrastructure, and simple art. These people simply, uh, seemingly migrated, leaving the area where a new group of people came who would be known as the Sumerians. Yep. Yeah, the, the Ubaidians is a, it's a weird, when I, when I came across that, for the first time, I was like, well, okay, that's a trip. You know, that, that's all we really know about them is that before the Sumerians, there was just a strange group of people who were seemingly less civilized. Um, they didn't have, uh, you know, complex infrastructure, but they were there and they made some pottery and they're known as the Ubaidians for, because of Al-Ubaid, the place that we found them. And then after they just left or whatever they did, the Sumerian civilization sprung up in a full force. Do you think that maybe they were like pre-Anunnaki genetic splicing, <laughs> like the Ubadians? Like maybe they they were yet to be uh, induced with the seed of the seed of knowledge from the uh, Anunnaki in that Sumerian story. Yeah, it's possible because uh, as the Sumerian texts tell us, they went through experimentation before they created what they called the Lulu Amelu you know, the primitive worker um, or the homo sapien. So, yeah, they went through experiments and, and created some some uh, deformed um, people at first. Some of the people at the first, some of the first creations that they made were like deformed or just non-functioning beings, but they might have had some like prototypes for sure. Well, yeah, that's always fun to, fun to think about. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, let's get into Enki and, yeah. and Lil. Uh, 
we've we've vaguely covered that story, but it's always it's one of my favorite things to talk about is that whole uh, Sumerian <laughs> tale. Uh, so yeah, get into uh, Enki and Enlil and and how Lucifer stems from that. Oh, right, for sure. So to understand that how, how Lucifer stems um, from them, we have to understand that the Bible stems from them. When the early uh, scholars, like the ones you just named, uncovered the Sumerian text and started reading them or, or being able to decipher them, they started seeing all kinds of stuff that you know predated the Bible um, that were obviously the source for the Bible stories. Like we had flood stories, right? The Atrahasis story, which was the uh, pre-Noah um, you know, version of that, and just all kinds of things going back going back to Sumer. So it was obvious to the scholars that Sumer was the source information for the biblical scholars. I mean, that's without a doubt. So when we take that into, in consider, into consideration um, and we kind of decipher who these characters that have been simplified in the Bible are, we, we start to realize that they had counterparts in Sumerian culture. Now, for example, in the uh, flood myth in the Bible, obviously it's one God who's being spoken of, and this one God has this is, is is you know capricious in his decision to kill mankind and then also save one family. And uh, but when we f- read the Sumerian version, which is a little more detailed, we can see why there is that you know indecisiveness because it wasn't one god it was actually two gods two brother gods by the name of Enki and Enlil and it was Enlil the more vindictive um, Anunnaki god who wanted to destroy humanity because he was just kind of fed up and thought we were a bad idea to begin with and it was his brother Enki the more you know kind of like trickster um just uh, arts artistic kind of god who decided to save us through a, a lineage that he chose. So when we understand that the Bible comes from Sumerian mythology, then we start to pick apart the Bible and realize that the serpent in the Garden of Eden was more than likely Enki. Because um, in, Sumerian, in, in Sumerian language, there was a, a term that was used to denote um, people that were wise like him, and that term was Ushum Gal. Ushum Gal. Ushum meaning serpent, and Gal meaning great. And um, the Sumerians called their kings or their gods by this by this term, the Ushum Gals. It, w- it was more of like an enduring term, like the, yeah, he's an Ushum Gal, like a, a, a wise serpent, or the exact same word mm. that is used in the Garden of Eden story, Nakash wise serpent or somebody who's wise like a serpent because serpents are seen as as wise and also as renewing because they shed and are continually renewing themselves and 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 learning so uh we're gonna say something yeah that's well it's i mean this this is all super fascinating and the thing is if you know if that we can look at the you know the Anunnaki story from a distance, right? Because it's written so long ago, then it was refound, you know. And we can look, look, but what happens next, right? The speculations. Well, if it was real, if it's a thing, if this is a history of of what they're telling us is here, you know, Nubiru is, you know, within its oscillation. Uh, you know, it's like I, I don't know, like there's all the serpent uh, symbology, and to me, it's like. 
I, I automatically just go, they're inside. They're inside the hollow earth, baby. Like, <laughs> you know, craterous like situation. Yeah. They, they, they love gold. I know we can alchemically create gold underground. It's happened yeah. underneath pyramids, you know, like it's, there's stories of it. And so it's like, I, that's, that's where I go with Sumer. That's where I go with the Anunnaki story. I'm like, uh, Enki basically took, uh, you know, his bases down under the ground and has been running, running ship ever since. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. They referred to the, the place where Enki would often go as the Absu. And, uh, I was interested in it and I looked it up and it said it was the southernmost tip of Africa uh down below and then later in the sumerian text it it talks about how he divided africa up amongst his different sons and uh and so a lot of people say uh and you wrote about this in the book eddie yeah. is that a lot of people think like the underworld as like inner earth but uh like yeah go into a little bit about how you described it because i i agree yeah, so the underworld doesn't necessarily mean underneath the world. It could also just mean the lower part of the world as the way they saw it on their map. Because when the Anunnaki landed here or came here, as we can uh, you know, take from the text, they, primi- they primarily were you know, living in the Persian Gulf, Iraq, Iran, and Egypt. But, so that was like you know, the north for them. And then um, the south or the underworld would be farther down. So it was the underworld was simply a term for them that meant the lower parts of the earth, the abzu, the deep. Yeah, yeah. What about um, potentially even further past that? Like, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, Antarctica being incredibly esoteric and hard to touch and having, you know, a super off limits. Um, and maybe like there was more access down there, less ice. Maybe uh, that that could have been part of that landscape as well, potentially. Yeah. But speculation, I guess. Yeah. Well, real quick, just to, just to finish with Enki. Also, <clears throat> another reason why he is deemed as like Lucifer is just because he is always just repeatedly talked about as the god of wisdom. Um, like I got a note here, uh, Sir Henry Rawlinson, who was considered the father of Assyriology, you know, the study of ancient Assyria and Sumeria, um, says of uh, Enki that he functions as a source of all knowledge and science. And E.O. James, professor of history and philosophy of religion at the University of London, who wrote a lot about um, Enki and the Sumerian gods um, in the, I think, earlier, late 1900s, wrote about Enki as well as saying that he was the personification of divine wisdom and the source of all esoteric knowledge. So it's obvious that Enki was like, you know, the God of wisdom and he was definitely, you know, out of all the Anunnaki trying to give us some of that wisdom. I want to relate to another thing too, is the word alchemy comes from Kemet, uh, which was Africa. So, so Alchemet, so if if you talk about Enki being a scientist, uh, a course that would be like the the epicenter of where science and alchemy stem yeah. from, being that he was that person to bring that knowledge to that area uh, before. And another thing that I remember reading, this is this is a little racial. 
But I remember because we're talking about how the Sumerian words, they break things up into suffix, suffixes. There was, there was a word and it was like N-I-G dot G-A-R. Mm. And it was, uh, so, I mean, you can say it out loud and you know what that word is. Yeah. But the definition of that word is uh, a low life. Mm. Uh, in today's standard, but in old standard, it was lower life form, and it mm. didn't mean a low life like a person. It meant they came from the lower half of the planet, just like mm. you were saying, the low, yeah. the underworld, the lower life. Yeah, and those were the the people that lived there. They even referred to them as like the black headed people huh. in in many of the texts. So. There's yeah. a lot, there's a lot of that too. And then a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of people that talk about, you know, I mean, it's not really to do with it, but so eh, I'll just skip it. But <laughs> <laughs> No, I hear you, man. Like you're good with the etymology stuff for sure. Like there's a lot to break down with all of that and, and it leads you to more and more knowledge for sure. But, um, and I also heard the word, uh, gar, uh, from box auger perspective, uh, is is garden there you go yeah there's another one yeah Gar, garden yeah garden yeah and i guess in um the original so, yeah so then that word would be the low garden the lower garden yeah and i guess in the original hebrew word that was used for garden of eden could have been like uh translated as pretty much like a little like experimentational place like a little zoo like a zoo yeah but uh but to go back to before your your last question, Romy, was uh, about Atlantis and stuff. Well, we got to understand that Zechariah Sitchin, who I think is like the authority. Antarctica. Oh, Antarctica. Um, going to Zechariah Sitchin's uh, you know, speculation on, on the Anunnaki, who I think is the authority on it. Um, at the height, they only had like probably about six to 800 of them here. And at some point, we started to overpopulate them. And, and I'm sure a lot of them died left i mean they killed each other so um it's seemingly right it's they kind of just started to disappear and sitchin speculates that the last time nubiru was here which was around uh like 500 bc right around the same time when all the prof the prophets started preaching about god returning and right around the time that the symbol of the cross was starting to be used and all these things started to happen th instead of Nibiru coming and them starting, you know, bringing more supplies and more gods, they just peaced out. They said, you know what, you guys can handle it. So right around, uh, you know, 600 BC, which strangely enough is when the Bible was put together as well, finalized, mm. uh, they, they seemingly peaced out. And at that point, they probably had a fraction of what they originally had. I'd, I'd guess, you know, just a random guess. They probably had like 200 of, you know, authentic Anunnaki at that time, if anything. And um, Sitchin, for whatever reason, speculates that Enkian and Lil were told by their uh, um, authorities that they had to stay and die out on the planet. For, and that was their punishment for what they had done. Um, so they, that's what Sitchin says. I haven't found any anything that says that, but that's his speculation. And Marduk obviously stayed, you know, Enki's son, the ruler of Babylon, because he wanted to stay. He loved it. He was all about it. He probably met yeah. a lady. 
a lot of people will talk about this in in Bible stuff and say that the watchers, uh, but those are the same as like the Ejiji, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, yeah, the, there the, you have that parallel again. Yeah, it's almost like they were just left over. Just some of them were left over just to kind of like monitor, and then you got it. You got like you know the Black Knight satellite, which can kind of like tie into that. I mean, I don't go into that in my book, but um, I'm not sure if you guys have heard about that. But that that's a trip, you know. Uh, there, apparently, there's a satellite that's been circling our Earth um, for who knows how long. Could it be hundreds of thousands of years? It's just this black technological looking thing. And black cube. Well, it, it kind of looks like more, I don't know, it looks weird. It looks like a pod, mm-hmm. like a pod, but they call it the Black Knight Satellite. And I guess uh, Billy Carson from Forbidden Knowledge is working on a documentary on that. But Dope. but that, but one of the first people who who recognized that it was there was actually Tesla. He started getting these like these 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 messages, these reoccurring digital messages the same day, same time. And so he um, concluded there's something circling the earth and it's digital and it's it's beeping. And now some of our, you know, people in the skies, you know, some of the astronauts and stuff like that have, have seen this thing and taken pictures. So going to the Ajiji, I think, uh, or the Gigi, Yeah. I think they, they're definitely, there were definitely some that were left here to watch and kind of monitor if anything. The that, eye in the sky. Exactly. That's super, in, super interesting because another theory that it gets tossed around is that, you know, Anunnaki could very well have do this to many planets and they have multiple circulations that they run. And, you know, it like the, you know, when Nibiru or when Nibiru comes and makes rounds back, that's when they'll come and get the gold. So there's people working on harvesting and, and getting gold now just to give to them or, you know, or some sort of transfer, some sort of something, yeah. you know, like that there is a kind of, you know, they make their rounds, you know, and, and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and isn't it funny like how all the gold went missing in like Fort Knox? Right? <laughs> Remember that? Like, <laughs> I don't know, man. Yeah, there's. I don't know. I mean, Sitchin was the one who proposed the whole gold theory, and there's there's some um, reason to do so. I mean, because all the the gold from the ancient, like for example, in the Americas, I mean, they made everything out of gold. And and when the Spaniards asked them about it, they said, "Well, the god, it's for the gods, right? They the, their their word for gold was literally um, the tears of the gods." It's only so one letter gold, away. Gold, I mean, yeah, you know. gold has God in it. Sure, yeah, man, right. Take, take the L out, right? What's Damn. what's the L? What's what's just L? You know, well, God, L. Lord, L. L. Yeah, it literally means L. Lord, Lord. Huh? Straight Damn. up. Oh, okay. So Anunnaki uh, and Atlantean, right? Like they both have A N, right? So are we mm-hmm. is that is that a thing? Can we make that tie at all, or what, where are we going off that? I think we can. Um, I think we can. With Atlantis, of course, we were we were all primarily introduced to that idea by Plato, and Plato was introduced to that idea by his uncle Solon, and his uncle Solon was introduced to that idea by the Egyptians. But um, of course, that story is told in other in, in other ways by other cultures. But Atlantis, as the word and as the story, as we all know, it came from Plato. Um, and some people claim that they found it today. You know that they they found it, and that yes. it wasn't that long ago. But uh, just as the occultists um, kind of speculate, the you know there's definitely something missing. You know in in our human history, and um, like the Freemasons, the Freemasons primarily uh, center around the idea of the flood. They believe that 
the flood did happen. And after the flood, the gods chose the some of the bloodline of Cain to construct these pillars, right? The two pillars of uh, Joachim and Boaz that are in the lodges. And on those pillars were inscribed, you know, the basic knowledges of science and art to reconstruct civilization after the flood. So all around everywhere, whether it's in the church or the occult, you know, there's a, there's an idea of the flood and that might be embedded in our memory. Yeah. yeah. I, I think uh, Roman was going with at Antarctica and the connection with the A and T and no, no, I was going like Anunnaki times <laughs> Anunnaki. of like, oh. you know, a free energy could have been a time oh, of Anunnaki okay. period. Well, and then also I wanted to bring up Saturnian cosmology with mm-hmm. Anunnaki story, how we could pair that, you know, because sure. I'm thinking like, I'm just thinking about a species, right? Like a, a, like the Anunnaki that have, incredible high tech right if they did exist they yeah. they have high tech right to genetically manipulate their master alchemist they have they have a lot going on that's really hard to even kind of conceptualize but you can i guess if you have a sweet imagination but and then you take the saturnian cosmology where um you know the the sun is birthed out of saturn and and mars and the planetary alignment were in a very special and specific way and then i like i i wonder if we can like kind of mash those two together mash anunnaki and saturnian <laughs> cosmology being the same time and possibly atlantis <laughs> at the same time as that too well i mean jeez <laughs> <laughs> well uh okay i got a couple things to say to that first um when it comes to the flood, I mean, there's some real evidence for that. Of course, Graham Hancock and uh, Randall Carlson do their work showing the geographic evidence of it. But um, we have a really strange piece of evidence for it that sits in uh, the Assyrian Museum over there in Britain. And they have a whole museum dedicated to the last Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal. Right? Ashurbanipal was the last Assyrian king. And, and we know about him. We have a lot about him. And there's a text of his that where he boasts that uh, the God of scribes or the God of writing has bestowed upon me the knowledge oh. to read and write the languages from before the flood. Wow. Which was thought the Atlantean. Yeah. Yeah. So in, Which in, is Hermeticism. Hermeticism. Holy oh, shit. Hermeticism. Yeah. Oh, straight up. That is the OG. Yeah, that's kind of where, <laughs> earlier. That's why I kind of hesitated because what I was saying in my mind was hermeticism as we know it, like the Greek, you know, connotation of it. Yeah, that's the OG of modern times. But if you really dig into real hermeticism and its origin, its legendary origins go all the way back to Toth the Atlantean. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. That's yeah. such a trip, dude. It's so trippy to think about. It, everything is so uh, so loose. Let me, I, let I me, can't even. Let me bust some other stuff on you, Roman. Because you're talking about inner world and hollow earth and everything, right? And we're talking about Enki being the Absu of the southern tip of I'm really Africa. on expanding earth theory now, though, where <laughs> it's the celestial okay. body that but, is growing just like anything else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But remember in like those old maps of Antarctica, what's it called? Terra Fuego, right? Well, they found like there's like six or seven different giant volcanoes in Antarctica and perhaps the steam or the heat from those giant volcanoes could cause caverns within side 
the Antarctic uh, continent. So what if this happened? What if in the Absu, at the southern tip of Africa, there's a portal, per se, not necessarily a portal to some other realm, but a portal that goes down into the ground and under the ocean into Antarctica. Yeah. And then, so you have that ant word. That's where uh, hmm. ant, right? Then you have the Hopi Indians in America saying that Argent- these people. Argentina, too, is this most southern tip of South America, and there's said to be some supposed entrances to Antarctica on that side, uh, which you- is another A. Yeah, well, you have uh, the Hopi Indians that say the ant people came up from underneath the ground. Holy and, shit. Yeah. And when people decipher the ant people thing, that connects back into the Anunnaki also. Yeah, yeah, I've read, the, I've read that. And, and the Hopi Indian, the story of the ant people actually centers around the flood too. They actually yeah. help, helped them. They saved them when the flood happened. They, the yep. ant people came out, grabbed some of them, and were like, yo, come over here for shelter. And, then, and they hit them in there for quite some time. Yeah, so there you go. Man, <laughs> yo, uh, Eddie, you're you're uh, earlier you said you didn't mean to plug your YouTube channel, but you yeah. should absolutely plug it because it's fucking awesome. Your uh, documentaries are high quality and great, it's like just the perfect kind of YouTube content I like to watch. So, thank you. Oh, yeah, thank you, man. I mean, I grew up on that stuff, so in a way, it's just kind of like me living out, you know, I don't know, my, my passion and, and giving back you know, uh, to the community that raised me. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, so, check it out. Esoteric Eddie TV. I just dropped one, um, I think today or yesterday on, on Zechariah Sitchin and the Anunnaki. Uh, what are your thoughts on Sitchin? Because a lot of people say that, uh, Sitchin is wrong and Sitchin is that, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I read his whole book series. I really liked them. I enjoyed them. I don't know what he's wrong about per se, yeah. unless he's making up like Nibiru or something. But other than that, like everybody pretty much corroborates everything he says. Maybe there's like some little tiny details, but the overall picture of yeah. who the Sumerians were kind of still holds up. Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, the whole Sitchin is wrong thing comes from that dude, um, Michael Heiser. I think I'm getting that right. Michael Scheiser. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, people are just like tripping because he's mainstream. Sure so like anyone tripping. who's like mainstream, you know, they, they're like, oh, he, no, you know, can't they, trust they, him or whatever. Well, they, uh, in one of Sitchin's later, later books, uh, he talks about going into the King's Chamber and the Great Pyramid and people trying to fucking kill him. Oh my gosh. You got, yeah, they like pushed a rock over onto oh, his man. head or something like that. And like he was in the hospital for a while and he thought somebody was seriously out to get him. Yeah, I, I imagine. But uh, I mean, Sitchin is wrong.com is, is a, it was created by Michael Heiser and he's probably his most popular detractor. And um, I remember hearing somewhere in an interview, um, not sure if this is true or not, but. I remember hearing it that he he hasn't even read one full of, of book by Sitchin. <laughs> <laughs> How does he say he's wrong? Exactly. So I mean, Michael Heiser he he's like he's like a wannabe, you know, like like uh, okay. ancient alien theorist. He's more he's more uh, he he holds on to the more religious aspect of it all. He's still kind of theological with it. Doesn't want to take it to like the extreme or to the extent further than theology. So he tries to stay there. Um, but a lot of his detractors, in my experience, when I've talked to people who have said like, oh, man, all that stuff's crazy. I just simply ask him, have you read one of his books? 
And time and time again, his detractors will say, no, nah, I've never even read one of his books. Man, <laughs> so like, it's like you- people in David Icke, man. It's like, you know, yeah. they're, they're like, oh, yeah, you know, he, that David Icke shit. Yeah, I mean, like everything's kind of cool except for, you know, the reptilian thing. And you're like, yeah. that's the only thing you're clinging on to. Like the guy's <laughs> well fucking researched. I mean, yeah. Jesus, give him a break, you know. He's yeah. been doing this shit for years. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like with like Billy Carson and uh, Matt LaCroix, yeah. when they talk about Anunnaki, it, it seems to corroborate everything Sitchin has said. Uh, maybe yeah. there's little differences that they're bringing out that, you know, maybe he didn't get to talk about or maybe he had slightly wrong. But but he's also the first guy to try to decipher the freaking tablet. So like yeah. maybe he didn't decipher perfectly. You can't say that he like, did it purposely or he is trying to add or whatever i mean he was trying to figure it out i mean we have to give him at least credit for that yeah i mean that's why i dropped the documentary man like i got a lot of respect for him and people throw around the word anunnaki all day long now i mean the whole ancient alien tv show is centered around that you know yeah and um to me, there is no ancient alien TV show. There is no Anunnaki theory. There is none of that without Zechariah Sitchin. Maybe Von Daniken, sure, but but Sitchin took it to the to an extreme and gave did a service to humanity. So I have high regards for him, and uh, I even have my own you know critiques of him. Uh, I've read a lot of his books, and there are little things that he does that are kind of like okay, like. Um, I don't know, not necessarily wrong, but the kind of like, like, for example, um, he'll just mention text, right? Like this text says that, but then he won't leave the source material for that text. Mm. I'm just like, damn dog, yeah. like, let us yeah. know where, where is this at? Like, I want to go see this, you know? So that that's and one that, of my biggest contentions is like, dude, like you could have left us more source. Another thing that he does too, is he, he repeats things like yeah. over and over and over yeah, again. He'll like, it's almost like a form of like, uh, uh, What's it called? Uh, brainwashing. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I was definitely a, little... a f- fanatic when I first. Ca- I mean, I came across that when I was like 13, 14, Man, I was like major fanatic about oh, it. But how uh, old are you now, though? Uh, Twenty seven. Okay, because I came across nice. it when I was about your age. I was like twenty five, twenty six, twenty seven around there. And the first book I read was uh, book book four. Or something like that. It wasn't even. It wasn't the good one of the good ones. <laughs> it was one of the random. It ones. was yeah. It was one of the middle ones. And like then cosmic and then code I, or something. Yeah, it was cosmic code, dude. Was it? <laughs> no, that cosmic code's like book five. It, this was like book the beginning four. Beginning time. Yeah. Uh, this one. Yeah. And then I was like, what? I kind of didn't understand. So then I had to read everything from the beginning, and then I started at one. And one, two, and three are just like fucking epic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love Sitchin too. Yeah, man. Uh, so uh, where does like? Oh, I was gonna go. Where where does the story go from there? But I wanted to throw in a little box saga at you. Yeah. Because with Anunnaki, you get these different idol shapes, right? Uh, you see like these depictions of them. Uh, they're either bird, bird headed with wings, or they're serpent looking. They have serpent heads, or they're these tall, bearded people with blue eyes. Yeah. And so they're like, the serpent, you know, the serpent motif is kind of there. The eagle or the the air god or whatever is kind of there. 
And then you kind of go into, uh, and then the blue eye thing. And then to me that connects into like the box saga and these, these Caucasian people that kind of seeded, uh, these different civilizations. Cause even in the Americas, you have the native Americans talking about Caucasian people coming there. You have the same thing in all these different places. And recently in like Egypt, they've been digging up mummies and they have like golden hair and red hair. And then you have all these stories about red haired giants and, uh, blonde hair giants and everything else. And so there's an interest, a very interesting connection that connects that back to, uh, to, to the box saga and the God Anne. and there's a God named on and, or Anne, and then that connects into, uh, the Danu and, uh, the tribe of Dan and all this other stuff. Yeah. And then you go farther, farther North and North. And then, uh, and you can end up, seeing a lot of the same similarities from the box saga too in the Sumerian text and in the Bible, the idea of this raw person being the first son, uh, who was the King. And then in the Sumerian, what do they call the moon, but Kingu, right. And then the last son in the, in the seventh son or the third or the 12th son, uh, before the flood, seventh son after the flood, they, uh, he was the son uh, that procreated and also known as the Bach. And he was represented as the sun. And the first sun was representation of the moon. So then you have this moon God whose name was Ra in the Bach saga that goes to, uh, Hindustan. And then from Hindustan, he goes into Egypt. Uh, I think there's different, like, I think Marduk kind of takes over eventually after the fact, but, you have this declaration of Ra becoming the sun now in Egypt. Yeah. When before Ra was associated with the moon. And then you have this whole deception in the Bible, right? Of Satan being cast out or Lucifer being cast out from heaven and, and Lucifer being this beautiful angel that was perfected and everything else, but then being cast out and then kind of, having sex with these other women and creating these hybrids that apparently God was pissed off about. And so he wanted to get rid of all of these hybrid creations that Satan had ended up creating through this hybrid hybridization process. And so it's a very similar story except for in the Sumerian, you know, they're created and fashioned and they, they have all kinds of fucked up ones. But even in the biblical, it's the Adam, right? That's the perfected version of all their trials of trying to perfect this perfect human worker. So yeah. there's there's a lot of different connections with all three of those. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, <clears throat> I, I didn't even hear about the box saga until you brought it up to me <laughs> a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and uh, I instantly just started looking into it, and I watched uh, the two documentaries, one on Atlantis and and Hell, and then yeah. I also just read some articles, and um, just I kind of got when I realized that it all comes from Igor, that kind of like uh, Eeyore. Yeah. yeah, sorry, Eeyore, uh, Bach, is it Eeyore? Yeah, I O R. Yeah. Eeyore. Oh, okay, Eeyore, Eeyore. Eeyore. Um, I mean, he was a, a a trippy dude too. I mean, so I started looking yeah, at him and, and his life, and uh, but that doesn't necessarily 
you know, discredit the whole thing, right? Because, for example, the Emerald Tablets of Toth, which uh, is like Billy Carson's, you know, whole thing, or was his whole thing for a minute, you know? He, he, yeah. he wrote the, Emerald, the compendium to the Emerald Tablets, and the Emerald Tablets are a huge thing in the truth community. And although we have the, the Tablet of Hermes, which is the Hermetica, where Hermeticism comes from, the Emerald Tablets of Toth is a different thing, which is like an actual full-on book, which is the one that, you know, Billy Carson is is always talking about that 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 actually comes from um an american dude um from the 1940s his name was dr m dorial dr m dorial he started um this group let me make sure i say this right because it sounds a little racist it's uh it's like the, let me see dr m <laughs> dorial brotherhood it's like the brotherhood of the white temple or something like that uh-huh. so i want to make sure i say it correctly um, but Dr. I mean, a, it's hard to find like good emerald tablets of Thoth. Like it's like hard to find like, well, yeah, well, what we'll get the Dr. M Doriel version, which is the one I have doc. And the reason what I'm getting to is, so he started an organization called the brotherhood of the white temple. And, um, he, he, he claimed, and his, uh, co-founders claimed to have a direct communication with the priests over in Tibet who were, uh, from Shambhala. So he was like, uh, a, oh, shit. there you go, another one, <laughs> dude. Um, but so he claimed to have gone over there, studied with them, and was it was given the emerald, the real emerald tablet, and was he was such a high priest, oh, wow. and he was a cult, yeah, high occult priest, and was in good communication with the priests of Shambhala. They they gave him the task. Look, you know, you're an American man. You're you know you're a man of the new age. Like meditate on these and translate them so he translated the actual emerald tablets into what we know now as the emerald tablets of toth that was the first translation dr m doriel's translation which are the translations that billy carson and everybody in the truth community is talking about so the reason i bring that up is um the box saga is you know amazing so much there and and when I listen to it, like something within me, like says, this is true. There's, you know, it just has that intuitiveness about it. The same way that the Emerald Tablets do, but what's, what makes them hard to, you know, justify or hard to like really, oh yeah, hard to justify academically is the fact that there's just come from these one people, right? Dr. M. Doriel, this strange dude from America, you know, with the, who claims to have got it from Shambhala, but yet the text himself just, gives so much deep intuitive knowledge. And the same thing is true with the box saga. Like it comes from this strange dude, Eeyore, who, who was a very strange dude, a cool guy. But yet the story he's telling is like beyond him. So yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's huge. Yeah, it, yeah it's crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. weird because Eeyore, Eeyore was illiterate. He never learned to read or write. And his, uh, his mother and his aunt taught him these stories and sat down with them and passed on the oral tradition orally to him. And there's like a whole bunch of other weird stuff that was supposed to happen. He was supposed to uh, uh, have a, a child, but something, uh, the way they do things with the Bach line, that he was supposed to marry uh, or have a child with uh, a, a consort, uh, kind of like in the Sumerians, how they like have to breed with like a half sister or something. Yeah. He, he was also supposed to do that, but she died in a, in a car accident. Whoa. And so he wasn't able to uh, 
procreate with her and keep the line going. And he was supposedly the last uh, son left in that Bach line. So now, now that whole line is conceptually dead. I mean, obviously the blood and everything lives on, but this is kind of the idea where the whole RH negative and everything uh, comes from too. And uh, they make a lot of weird claims, but a lot of the stuff that's interesting is, is the linguistics and uh, just the other deeper connection to all these other things. Like uh, I found that the word angel also uh, turned into the word Anglo, which is a Caucasian, right? And yeah. the word angel means uh, a circle or a corner. And it's like, angle. what's a Freemason logo, but yeah, like a like, compass and a square, right? Yeah. And I was like, oh, the angels. And then you get England and England, England, mm. the land of the angels. And then uh. so it's very interesting how all that kind of starts to work out too in the Anglo-Saxons and yeah. the Saxons. Uh, the Saxons are like the Scythians or something like that, I believe. Yeah, it's almost like everything's just hidden in language, hidden in language and symbols. Yeah, yeah, it's really super fascinating. But there's so many different connections, and a lot. And we talk about like these uh, these pseudo historians, or they're called pseudo historians, but like Graham Hancock and stuff. They all talk about like this ancient civilization that had to have existed and where did these people come from and who are they? And then what is Atlantis and like, you know, all this stuff and it's all connected back to this one saga. And it's like, it's so mind blowing to me. It feels like this is what everybody seems to be searching for this lost civilization. And there's a lot of other things, uh, uh, archeologically that kind of fit this profile too with the Lemminkainen temple and stuff being buried in there. And they said they even had made these box statues and there's, uh, I forget how many of them, but they're spread out into different castles. And we just talked to a guy on the new roots of creation show and, uh, that'll be coming out soon. And, and he said that he went to, uh, I think it's Kaijani castle and he did some ground penetrating radar and sure enough, there's there's a, a not a, there's like a void thing down below, but they're also detecting uh, ferrous metals and stuff like that, mm-hmm. right where the box saga says this golden box statue will be. Man, so this when that day happens, dude. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of craziness that is associated with that. But um, I wanted to get more into the Lucifer stuff and everything, sure. but I wanted I wanted to throw this in there because to me it does connect to this Anunnaki thing. Yeah. And uh, when I tell people, because people ask, like, you know, where's Danunaki Dan come from, where, like that name, uh, I connected the the tribe of Dan to the Anunnaki. Yeah. And uh, and because on ancient origins there was this, uh, uh, they found this text. Uh, that predated the Anunnaki or the Sumerian civilization by 2000 years. And they found it in the Danube river Valley, which is near the black sea. And they said that a lot of this language was uh, there were symbols and they were used for magic and to do uh, like spell casting and stuff like that. That's that the, the symbols that they were using were, looked magical it didn't look like it was for bargaining and for trade and when i saw that i was like oh man so that's 
the connection to the Danube River, which is a connection to Turkey and Gobleki Tepe, right? Yeah. Which is they think is the first uh, actual uh, place that they set after the flood happened, and then they kind of went into Sumeria and then kind of worked their way back. So uh, I just wanted to yeah, throw yeah. that in, throw that in there too. Uh, so. Let's get back into some more of this Lucifer stuff, though, from the Sumerians. Where do we go from Sumeria with Lucifer? Okay. Uh, before I get into that, I'm going to just uh, recap with, the, with yeah, the prophet, yeah. my final thoughts on that. Um, yeah, go for it. Yeah, it's funny. Actually, years ago, um, one of my coworkers kind of like brought that idea up to me, and I'd never taken that into consideration. He was kind of like, man, like all this Anunnaki stuff ain't real. Like they didn't come from another planet. Like they probably just came from a different part of our planet and tricked, you know, the the more primitive people that they were gods from another planet. And it kind of hit me and I was like, damn, he's kind of, he's kind of right. Like, so this box saga thing kind of like falls in line with that idea. So I think, yeah, I think, I think there's something there, man. And uh, I personally just have to do way more research on it. And oh let, yeah, let it's a long, world. it's a long research topic <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, the lucifer um yeah so just to recap right so the word lucifer was misconstrued mistranslated from the isaiah fourteen twelve verse which was an entendre uh meaning venus um the canaanite god athtar and there might have been mm-hmm. some other things at play with jerome and saint lucifer um so there is no lucifer you know and i know all the occult occultists are gonna you know be mad about that and trust me you know like um, I love occultism, you know, I, I love the philosophy of occultism. I love, you know, the, the rock and roll glamour of cult of occultism, right. You know, all that stuff. So it, you could be a little bummed out, you know, finding out that sure that Lucifer never existed. Right. But then when we, um, you know, uh, decipher the garden of Eden story and the implications there, we find out that there was a sort of a Lucifer character in our history who was Enki, you know, if he did exist, um, but at least mythologically he did, and he definitely fits all the attributes of a Lucifer character. But uh, going from there and further uh, and accepting that, you know, um, where I go from, I don't go into this in the book, but it's something that I've been kind of just talking uh, about recently is our, the idea of archetypes. Mm-hmm. And how archetypes have a lot of power. And uh, more recently, I, I, uh, I read the declassified CIA document titled uh, Project Gateway. Not sure if you guys have had a chance to read that one yet. No. I watched your uh, video the on that the other day. It was pretty tight. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I battled with holographic uh, universe for a while, and I still do because uh, it's just like – it's but I, I i dig it and it was, yeah it was, i it's it's crazy it's in it's very yeah. very very uh enlightening to see that that document though yeah it's it's, it's mind-blowing man when i read the whole document like it took me a couple of days to, to read through it when i read it's not that long it's like 30 something pages but um just to give a, a quick rundown on it so there's this dude named robert monroe who was doing sleep studies and mind studies uh, during like the early like nineteen uh, like fifties sixties, and then uh, he found out that he started to realize that you know astral projection was a real science that we could uh, induce, and that you know all this stuff. And um, the CIA did some studies on that, and in the report typed up by Lieutenant um, McDonnell, they 
they kind of study it and come up to their own conclusions about astral projection, um, the different varying dimensions of our universe and what it is we actually live in. And it's just a fascinating document. It blew my mind. I was in shock for, for a couple of weeks, honestly, like my mind was just, my paradigm had shifted. But the reason I bring it up and before I go into that is um, it's obvious now that, you know, whether it's the left-hand path or the right-hand path, we're all saying the same thing, that there is a source of, of all. And from the source of all, schisms broke out. The left-hand path would call the schisms, you know, the archons, um, all, you know, all those kinds of things, the demiurge. And then the right-hand path, which could be like the more theistic version of all that, would just be like, you know, demons, spirits. And in between all that, you have everything, right? You got the Anunnaki, the ascended masters, the gray aliens, all kinds of things. But we're all, you know, pretty much agreeing that there was a source of everything. From there, schisms broke spiritually and physically. And at some point, we humans were either created or um, we lost touch with our original selves, our original lineage. And here we are today, a dumbed down version of what we either were or could be and are um, either spiritually in interaction with beings of our past, our future or other dimensions who are here to manipulate or give us knowledge or we have actual physical contact with our past through these texts and through these histories and are realizing that, you know, we were more, right? There's different schisms to look at it, the spiritual, the physical. But when I read this document and what they concluded about life, uh, coupled with what Carl Jung says about the collective unconscious, I realized that, you know, the power of archetypes is significant and, the occultists are just as much at fault as the church for perpetuating the idea of the Lucifer. And, and it's funny because the occult kind of talks down on the church and theology saying that they're fools for believing in God. You know, they're ridiculous. But at the same time, the occultists believe in Lucifer just as much as they do in God. So we're all just fueling these archetypes of these beings and creating these little gods in our own mind. But uh, what Carl Jung state, what Carl Jung brought us was the idea of the collective unconscious, which Edgar Casey and the ancients would call the Akashic records, where there's a mainframe. And this is what the CIA document tells us. The CIA document tells us that there is a mainframe per se, where all knowledge and everything is stored. And that uh, when we die, we go back to that. So, and in the CIA document, they give credit and recognize that the ancient civilizations or the ancient mystical path was correct all along. So in the CIA document, they're, they're saying, you know what, we have to hang our hat up and, and, give, <laughs> and give respect to these guys because they, they knew what they were talking about. What they were telling us all along was true. There is a God there, per se. There is a place where everything, where all knowledge exists. And we're merely a fraction of that, a schism broken off from that. Yeah, man. I mean, like it's, uh, it, I mean, the, it, that's when I was watching the video. That's what kind of pissed me off. I was just like, yeah, yeah, they're, y yes. Why the fuck are you, you fucking federal fucks just now coming around to this? This is, you've never like, you know, and so like, but no, it is an absolute beautiful thing because I mean, deep down within the goodness of ourselves, we know that it's true. If you have, 
feel spirit and you feel spirit and you feel life and you ground yourself within earth and the understanding like see that's so it tripped me out when i first heard about carl Jung because uh, i was a like, collective unconscious and i was like oh wait no it's the collective consciousness so it's a, uh-huh. it's the collective unconscious is a collective consciousness right well um we could say what, what he meant to say is so we have consciousness we all partake in consciousness together what we call reality Reality is all of us partaking in the conscious interface. But then there's just how every individual has a consciousness and a subconscious, right? Your subconscious at the most basic of level is your dream self. There's also a collective unconscious, which um, some people have theorized is like what the DMT realm is or like, Mm. you know, and when you actually project, you're entering the collective unconscious where all our thoughts mm. and fetishes and weird things go. And as the Gnostics teach us, right, there was Sophia, the first consciousness Sophia. to um, to schism or break off from the source. And in her falling, she created the universe we are now in and accidentally created the Archons and the Demiurge. And they exist in that realm but we are trapped apart from that in a different dimension. But when we exit this dimension, which the CIA document titles the time-space dimension, we are entering the collective unconscious where all these wild things can exist. And even the uh, Egyptian pyramid text, the oldest religious text um, you know, accredited to the modern Egyptians, speaks about this. They say the whole pyramid texts are about preparing one's transition from death because there you can and probably will encounter these lower vibrational entities that exist in that collective unconscious yeah so good that's it's like a it's like a it's like a build-up of your soul to get ready for that you know that (laughs) contact with those lowers you'd like yo this this entire life is basically getting you ready to have those super vibes to go against Uh, that you know i want to i want to throw a couple couple things at you guys right now sure, sure. uh you're talking about asherah earlier and uh she's kind of connected to that sophia figure that knowledge and um and at, when i was because i was looking into her a, a bit ago and uh what I, what i came across is is somebody said that she was also called akasha and then, I, and then it like clicked into me like, oh, the fucking Akashic record, like yeah. how weird. And then, and and being that Sophia is like all knowledge, right? Yeah. What else would the fucking Akashic record be but fucking knowledge? Yeah. So there, yeah. there's that and other connection to there. And then in in Box Saga, there's a uh, Uko and mm-hmm. Aka, which is the All Father and the All Mother. Uka, Uko yeah. and Aka, and so you get Aka and akashic record and that that whole thing in ashra go, goes on and then from uko uh andy sent me this uh yesterday he's like look at this dude and uka he connected to occult mm-hmm. the occult wow. and i was like holy <laughs> fuck dude no way <laughs> like this <sighs> down you know because we're talking about akashic record and uka and yeah. uh, the occult and and then, so <laughs> what's interesting too is to take it back to Sumeria a bit. You're saying that the Sophia accidentally created the demiurge and all these things, but right, that kind of goes back into Sumeria, where like Inanna, 
right? They used her as like a breeding machine for to conceptualize the basically mm-hmm. the first Adam, right? Because yeah. she's the one that had Adamu, right? Or yeah. Dapu, or da- it was Adamu, because yeah. yeah. So that that connects right back into the Sumerian uh, mythology, also. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does because, as we said earlier, like she did create some some pretty uh, deformed uh, creatures at yeah. first. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a trip, man. It's almost like I don't know. It's it seems like the same story is being told in, in different ways. It's being told either like in a spiritual sense, but or also a physical sense. And as we all know, there's different ways to view the ancient past, metaphysically, yeah. historically, so on and so forth. In my book and in, in my mainstream work, I try to hit things academically. Um, I, I don't know. I, that's just the way I do it, um, just because I feel it's more universal academically. But personally, I, I mean, I'm a psychonaut, you know, and I'm right there <laughs> with you. And, and I try to decipher these things from the metaphysical point of view but the gnostics are the ones who gave us you know the idea of sophia primarily so i uh, mm-hmm. may, maybe they knew the story of the sumerians and they interpreted it that way i kind of yeah. i kind of believe I've, i haven't found any evidence for this but i think that gnostic the, means knowledge also so yeah no exactly gnostics but I think I yeah. think uh, some of these ancient civilizations know more than than they are letting letting off. And obviously, right? They know more than they are claiming to. But what I mean to say is that we only we only uncovered the Sumerians in the 1800s, right? They were lost yeah. to us prior to the 1800s. Even in Ashurbanipal's time, in in the last Assyrian, you know, ruler's time, Sumeria was already un, almost lost. Nobody really even knew what Sumeria was then. But I think I have a hunch or whatever that the Freemasons and some of these secret civilizations never lost that knowledge and always knew it. And maybe certain groups um, came across that, like the Gnostics, and were trying to interpret these texts. And then to them, they kind of fanaticized it, you know, and uh, created these other ideas. Is that the Vatican, man? (laughs) Exactly. It's all at the Vatican. (laughs) No, absolutely. Like that dude, Mauro Biglino, I'm not sure if you guys have seen him. Uh, Mauro Bellino, uh, R.I.P. Gerald Clark. He had a couple of videos where he interviewed him. Um, Mauro Bellino. He was a he was an ex-Vatican translator. So he would he had access to the Vatican Library and would translate text for them into Latin or whatever. And he claims that you know the Vatican has known for hundreds of years that of the Sumerian story and they know about Enki and Enlil and they know the implications of that. But uh, don't tell the public. <laughs> so, Damn. I mean, uh, yeah man i think the my, my main work is to just uncover this academically historically you know just to give everybody a basic frame of reference on our history but then from there as the mystery schools were intended to be then break off and, and speculate the more philosophical metaphysical you know implications of it it's beautiful work dude Absolutely. Like, uh, you don't, you don't, you don't really like see people just going for their fucking dreams and passions anymore, (laughs) you know, like to, to really like hear your story of, you know, you, you getting these Sitchin books when you're like in, in school 
in the fully indoctrinated Rockefeller schooling foundation. And you kind of just simp like, we're just, I mean, you're following your passion, bro. And like for that, a hundred percent. Thank you so much, dude. I appreciate you, man. Yeah. uh, I was going to ask, did you, uh, did you go to school or anything to become a writer or you just thought one day, Hey, I'm going to fucking write a book about Lucifer. (laughs) (laughs) No, uh, well, I've always had a passion for it. So the first time I realized my, my skill and power in writing was actually in fourth grade. Uh, I won Mm. a, I won a contest for best, uh, fictional story. And I was an introvert kid, didn't really like uh, sports. I was a rebel too, youngest of four kids. I grew up on Pink Floyd, Hendrix, all that stuff in elementary. Yeah. So I was walking around going, tear down the wall, like all that stuff, man. I was a rebel. <laughs> but being the introvert that I was, I still I still had confidence. I still wanted to present stuff to the world and be a part of the world. So when I wrote my first fictional story and it was dope and I presented it for the class and everybody was like cheering and laughing like this is dope. That's when I realized I had something. So I let that foster for many years and I wrote some full length fictional novels in middle school that I haven't done anything with. Oh, wow. um, Yeah. And then I got into lyric, lyric writing, lyricism, a lot of that. And then uh, when I was 23, some years ago, I actually wrote my first book which was an industry failure. I was too eager and didn't get it um, edited. Um, so I took that down. Um, I'm actually in the process of rewriting that whole thing and I'm going to release that uh, this year. So I've actually published a book before. It's an industry failure, but I'm, I'm reworking it. What, what was it called? What was it about? Uh, I was going to, I was a little reluctant to mention it yet, but, um, <laughs> but it's out there. So it's a couple of Just say what, what is it about then? You don't have to say the title. Uh, well, it's about the Anunnaki. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Fuck yeah, yeah dude. Yeah, I'm rewriting it. I'm actually really hyped. I'm, I'm working. I'm going to release it this summer. Um, I'm already working on rewriting the first chapter, and I'm already hyped, man, because my level of writing and my level of researching is so much more advanced. And Confidence. Yeah, the first chapter is already, like, impressing me, man. It's like, damn, just because of the sheer amount of more knowledge that I've come across over the years. Yeah, that's great, man. Uh, do you have any other I- I endeavors for the future? Any uh, aspirations or goals you want to get to oh, down yeah. the road? Yeah, I, I, I'm a goal kind of dude. I'm very motivated. I got, you know, of course, different aspects of my life, you know, um, you know, home life, you know, art life, and all, all different other aspects and different goals. But as far as writing and my esoteric stuff, I mean, I'm going to just keep pumping out documentaries. I'm going to keep writing books. Eventually, um, if this is the last book I ever write, I'm I'm going to give my full conclusion on on Jesus eventually. And, yeah, but uh, yeah, that, man, that's a that's a big that'll one. be great. That's a big big one, you know. Yeah, yeah, that it is, man. Uh, so eventually that'll happen, probably sometime when I'm ready to. But until then, documentaries, you know, articles, videos, books here and there. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Excellent. So good. Uh, what? Uh, you have anything else to add, Roman? Uh, I mean, I feel like we we did pretty good on the subjects that we. Yeah, we got yeah. through a lot. Um, I I'm stoked. Uh, I just watched the Gateway video. Um, and I watched some of your Sitchin one today. Uh, cause I was like, oh fuck. Yeah. Like I was like, just drop that. I was like, perfect. We're going to go into the yeah. whole, like, you know, 
<laughs> kind of the same conversation this evening. So it was, it was great. Um, uh, but no, I'm, I'm just excited to watch more videos, dude. Like I can't get enough. I'm, I, there's too much shit out there, man. No, there's not enough. I love it, but I just, I, I eat this shit up, bro. I'm like yeah. soup, cereal, water, what, what liquid, like osmosis, <laughs> like give me information. <laughs> so, um, this whole month we're de- dedicating to good and evil, God and Satan. And so you're going to, you're kind of filling that role of, uh, the, lucifer uh figure for us and then uh we have a guy coming on to talk about god and then we have an um another one that's going to come on and talk about astrology and astral myths and how that relates to uh good and evil and god and satan uh those prototypes and then we also have uh uh miguel connor from gnostic uh Hey, I'm that, yeah. yeah yeah that's why i heard you uh, on there dude yeah that was where i first he, heard of your book he's coming on the show uh to give us a little bit of a gnostic version of good and evil and he god knows and satan yeah he knows so we're, we're, we're trying to get trying we're trying to, to get all this. the angles you know yeah we're trying to hit this at all the different angles that we can so we're, and then we're, uh you're gonna join us too at the end of the month when we do the group show Okay, and okay. we're gonna have a couple other podcasters on there. Uh, I know you know Matt from uh, yeah, um, Great Deception. Yeah, the Great Deception podcast. You're on his show. He's gonna be on there, and then uh, our buddy Andy and uh, another guy whose name is Emmanuel Kingman, who uh, who hosts the show called the oh. Godcast, <laughs> and he's very deep into nice. uh, Jesus and stuff. Okay. So uh, we're we're trying to make a roundtable full of of different uh, we'll be well. ideas and brain power, so we can kind of talk this out and see if we can work through some of these ideas and conceptualize together a little bit more uh, of what the meaning of all these different stories are and all these different angles and and how many of them you know uh, hold true and 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 just have a good conversation uh about all this stuff because i think it's important because a lot of people really uh seem to like demonize some of this evil stuff and like you know you see people make videos just because people throw up horns on their hands and it's like oh they're satan worshipers and it's like you guys need to calm down a little bit it's it's like not like that and like everything occult is has to do with satan and evil and it's like it's really not like that in in a cult there's a lot of information that's about understanding and life and like spirituality and everything else and you can't just throw all that stuff out because you think it's like some type of pagan religion or belief i mean the pagans didn't create lucifer or satan freaking christianity and catholicism yeah literally like literally (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, I so say like, in the book too. I say Lucifer is not uh, a creation of the occultists; it's a creation of the Christians. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's so like to say that it's it's bad. It's like a it's your own community that created it in the first place. So like, uh, like we understand the, like the duality aspect of everything, you know, and like you were talking about the left hand path and the right hand path. And then, but there's also that middle path, you know, yeah. 
that's what I kind of strive to be on is that middle path and keeping that balance in life and uh, enjoying some good and some bad, you know, and and not really trying to go too hard to the left or too hard to the right, but kind of maintaining a little bit of balance and not, (laughs) yeah, not, you know, getting too indulged into all the different things, but actually having good experiences and experiencing this life that we're living and trying to uh, figure it out, man. Cause it's crazy, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. So, so nuts. Uh, have, have you ever got into like simulation theory or anything like that, man? Uh, oh, yeah. Off topic, not off, not book topic, but just yeah. conversational wise. Yeah. Like, Absolutely. Um, that's kind of what the whole CIA document thing speaks on and the documentary that yeah. I dropped. Yeah. That that document, I mean, I've always kind of played with the idea, watch videos and stuff like that. But that document made it real for me, man. Like I, I suggest everybody take some time to go read that 30 page document, dude. It it made it it made it like more understandable for me. And yeah, I think what we're living in is definitely um holographic on a quantum level. Doesn't yeah. necessarily yeah. mean we are fake. Yeah. It just means what we're interfacing with is a little more tangible on a light spectrum than we might think. It, it, I think I, it, energetically it makes a lot of sense because you know, I mean, it basically holographic universe. It's not or holographic uh, reality isn't that far off conceptual when you think about micro. uh, micro macro right everything is fractalized down everything is a hologram or a physical uh reaction to moving energy so if you just manipulate energy you know it's i'm gonna read the document i'm gonna read the document and we'll talk about it more (laughs) on the fucking show on the news segment before we release the episode or some shit but uh but yeah man thank you so much eddie dude uh you got a uh a lot of content for us coming in the future look forward to every single piece of it brother hey thank you thank you yeah man thank you uh we appreciate it uh go ahead and tell the people where they can find your book um and uh any let them know your uh youtube uh channel and everything like that do all your plugs and all right absolutely uh youtube esoteric eddie tv uh instagram esoteric eddie uh, you can buy the book on amazon the lucifer mystery revealed under my um you know government name eduardo Fidencio cano or you can hit me up on instagram <laughs> if you don't want to support jeff bezos and his rocket ship uh hit me yeah. up on instagram and i can uh, mail one directly to you yeah, I uh, when uh when Eddie first contacted me and hit me up, uh, saying that he wanted to be on the show, uh, he sent me a PDF file of his book, and uh, I I can't read on phones. Uh, the light just fucks with my eyes too much. I get all blurry and get headaches and stuff. So I hit him up. I said, "Dude, I really want to read your book, but I can't read it on this thing." So, will you please send me a copy? I'll gladly pay you whatever you're asking for it, uh, just because I want it for the shelf too, because I want to use it as a resource. And uh, he sent it to me. I didn't ask him to sign it, but he did sign it. And so I appreciate that, man. I thank you for that. Absolutely. And uh, uh, it's a actually a very thick book. Uh, but what I like about it is the words are are big and readable. It's not like really, really tiny print. 
So it's very legible. <laughs> it's easy to oh, read. Yeah. It's easy. It's easy on the eyes for me. Yeah. And I can, I can read through it pretty well. Uh, so I appreciate that. And, uh, also the cover, uh, who did the cover work for your book, man? I did actually, I got a little bit of graphic design background. I, yeah. That looks nice. That looks good. I wanted to what did you, uh, what's your rate? What up? <laughs> what are your rates? <laughs> oh, I mean, to spend the pens, you know, I'll hook you up. Um, oh, sick. Yeah. Graphic I'm working design. on an herbal blend company. Oh, okay. Does, does it say something right there mm -hmm. in, uh, yeah. What is that? Yeah, Hebrew or Akkadian yeah. or what? Yeah, that's Hebrew. So I wanted to incorporate, you know, uh, various symbols that have been attributed to Lucifer over time. And if you read the book and then look at the cover, the, the yeah. cover tells you everything you need to know about Lucifer. So you have <laughs> you have the serpent, right? You have the snake right there, obviously the serpent, yep. the Garden of Eden, and then you have the fire behind him, which could be either the fire of hell because he's always attributed to Satan, but it could also be the light because he's the light bringer. And then yeah. you have uh, the Hebrew is the Halel Ben Shahar, which is the first where we get Lucifer from. And okay. Then you have the pentagram, which of course is attributed to Lucifer, Satan, the left hand path. And then behind that, you have the star of Ishtar, which is also the star of Venus. Yeah. All that different attributes of uh, Lucifer. It's uh, 100% an asterisk, too, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> the asterisk. Yeah. Making connections, man. That's, Making what, connections. that's what we do here. Uh, you know, we talk to people and we try to make those different connections that other people kind of aren't making or aren't seeing. And, and uh, that's why we do this. That's why we love it, because uh, we get to do all this fun shit and talk to awesome people like you. And um, we'd love to have you uh, come back on the show and just uh, bullshit yeah. with us sometime, man. Yeah. I would like to pick your brain on kind of what else you kind of have going on up there and, and uh, not talk about <laughs> the book so much, but yeah. just talk about spirituality and life and ancient history. Oh, yeah. yeah. And and do all that, man. Um, yeah. Absolutely, I got, I got a lot of other stories, man, and experiences for sure. <laughs> oh, do you, nice. do you have uh, some paranormal experiences? I do. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you want to get into them now or or next time, but um, I got astral projection experiences. Okay. Um, a lot of lucid dream stuff, a little little bit of weird paranormal stuff growing up as a kid. But um, I've said this in some of my more recent uh, podcasts that when I was one of the things that woke me up as a kid was when I was about eight years old, uh, something that happened to me when I was eight years old. My grandpa, who used to be a pastor, uh, stopped being a pastor, became an alcoholic for some time and then stopped that and then just kind of picked up a cigarette habit. And ever since I was a kid, he would just always be smoking a cigarette, looking at the stars, you know, and um, what we kind of make fun of him for it, like, oh, there's grandpa doing this thing again. But one day at around eight years old, I decided to go ask him, you know, what are you staring at? You know, I thought he was going to say, oh, I'm thinking about, you know, so-and-so. But what he told me was that, you know, she had seen a UFO one time and that he was kind of always just wanting to see another one. And mm. that moment that shook, you know, his belief, his faith. And I asked him at like eight years old, well, growing up in a religious family, I asked him, well, what does that make you feel about God? And he just took a puff, looked at me and said, I don't know. <laughs> so from that moment on, I mean, my life just became this esoteric journey of trying trying to understand the world that we really live in. Oh yeah. wow, yeah, that's good. That's in that's man, grandpa. Yo, Eddie, if did you he have uh, like an actual UFO experience, like did he like like well, see aliens, or was it just 
uh, something in the sky. Just a craft. I remember my uncle saw it. They they love going to the casino. So uh, I think it was in San Diego. I'm I'm from San Diego, down here on, on the, the valleys, going to the casino. They saw uh, a craft, I guess, something just come out of the sky and then just swoosh like by them really fast and then pass them. And it just it was close enough and just wild enough to completely shake, you know, my grandpa's belief in God and everything. Wow. Uh, Damn. Yeah. A lot of sightings down there. Yeah. Uh, you're going to say something, Roman. I cut you off. Sorry, man. Oh, oh yeah. No worries. Uh, if you're a psychonaut, dude, uh, you should check out the book, the seven sisters of sleep. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a drug classic. Yeah. It's super awesome. It actually kind of changed my opinion on tobacco in general, because my mom is a habitual smoker, like a shit ton of cigarettes like i love her we just actually had her on but uh just to let everybody know uh she she smokes like like on the phone off the phone you know in the car out the car like okay. so much and i would just be like mom can you fucking stop smoking cigarettes the only thing i want in the entire world is for you to stop smoking so if you could <laughs> i'd be like really happy i yeah. rip them out of her mouth throw them out of the car all the things anyways i read this book and it's like uh you know, just kind of gave me like less people smoke now than have ever like honestly in history. There's times when we were handing our infants mm-hmm. tobacco out of the yeah, out of the pipe, <laughs> you know, and you couldn't you like it was just there's so much and it's such a good book. It was written in 1860, so uh, it's got a mm-hmm. lot of old timey language and a lot of really nice. cool serps and uh, it references Tartary multiple times. Oh, uh, the tribes, of, the tribes of Tartary. What? Uh, so that was pretty cool. I've, I've highlighted it, and I'm going to bring it on the uh, on the news next time. Hey, uh, Eddie, uh, what do what do your uh, parents think of of you writing uh, your, your first book <laughs> called "The Lucifer Mystery Revealed"? Um, uh, given that you, uh, <laughs> it was your grandpa that used to be a pastor, right, and stuff, and you grew up in a pretty religious family. Yeah. How did how did that go? Pretty not not bad actually. Um, my parents are, are very open minded people. They're cool. Um, now they're they're cool. They just my mom's kind of like she's just kind of like like the little happy mom, just happy to show off yeah. whatever her kids do. So she's just like <laughs> it's, you know me and her conversate about God. And I talked to her about I'm op- I I hold I don't hold back at all when I talk to her about anything. I talk to her about Enoch the Anunnaki and all that stuff, and she's just like wow, that's so weird. And then, <laughs> and she's just like, well, when your book comes out, you know, give me the link. I'm going to buy it. And she like tells all her friends. And so she, she loves anything that, you know, me and my she read your book. Can. Did she read it? She's got one. Yeah. I don't know if she's going to read it, but she's got one. <laughs> and my, nice. my dad, um, my dad's like a tough dude. Just, um, he's just kind of always like, oh, that's cool. That's cool. Like whatever. You know, he's got like a, the uh, asset calendar yeah. tattooed on his back. Oh, and, old uh, school, huh? Yeah. So he's, yeah. my parents are chill. They're cool people. They, but my dad's a tripper too, in his own way. Um, he, oh, yeah. he he likes uh, to look into like deep knowledge and, and history and stuff like that. He's Catholic. My mom's Christian. Uh but Ooh, you have a lot nice. of uh, knowledge about the Aztec culture and everything like that, or I've no? got some stuff. I've got some stuff. Um, I, it's something that I'm starting to pick back up again. Actually, I'm in the works of possibly putting a documentary together about Tezcatlipoca. Yes. Oh, you guys about him? No, dude, right, I, so, that's the most that's the most appealing shit in the world is to dig up more uh, Mesoamerican history, like just more, 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 like everything of that. 
like all of that. Oh, there's a lot there, man. Um, so when I came across this book called The Gospel of the Toltecs, that changed my mind in uh-huh. a big way. So, um, all right. So it's kind of an unfortunate event because a lot of what we know about the Aztecs and the Mayans comes from the books that were left over after we burned the other 95%. Yeah. So it's kind of like bittersweet. And um, there's this dude by the name of Diego Friar Landa, Friar Diego Landa. And he was responsible, solely responsible for burning all the books, but he was wise enough uh-huh. to, to keep like five or six, which are the only five or six that we have um, besides the writings and hieroglyphics on those structures. And um, this dude who wrote the gospel of Toltecs kind of took what all the Spaniards um, said about their actual encounters with the, with the natives and the stories that they told him them and the other writings pretty much piled it all together and found this interesting story about this 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 crazy wizard this crazy dark wizard by the name of Tezcatlipoca who was solely responsible for tearing down the spiritual people of Toltec and it's a wild mm. story man so there was an ancient king by the name of Kekate in that book <laughs> yeah there was an ancient so so first we had the Olmecs right the Olmecs the Zapotecs yeah and then the Toltecs and then and the Toltecs were kind of like the last people who held the spiritual um, beliefs before before the Mayans and the Aztecs came with all the sacrificing and fucking craziness but the Toltecs the last Toltec king legendary king was Ke Akato um, also known as Ket, uh, Quetzalcoatl, but that was just a title. Uh-huh. He wasn't the Quetzalcoatl. That was just, he, he was given right. the title. His actual name was Quetzalcoatl, but he was the last ruler of the Toltec kingdom. And he was a loved king. He, he loved all his people. He, he made to, uh, the, the Toltec kingdom prosperous, all that stuff. Not to get too deep, but uh, this random dark wizard by the name of Tezcatlipoca came with a band of whores and, and drug addicts. And he just, he knew how to do all these weird, like cheap magic tricks and shit and started like slipping people like mushroom tea and like mushrooms and like making, changing their belief systems and, and pretty much churned, oh, wow. churned the whole kingdom against uh, Keakato and then, and, and made them go crazy. There's a part in some of the ancient texts where it says that uh, Tezcatlipoca took hundreds of the Toltecs and gave them all this like shroom tea and shit and got them super fucking high and was like beating (laughs) drums and shit, like making them beat drums and chant until they fell into a trance and then just fucking led them off a cliff. Just hundreds of them. So this dude was just crazy, man. He was just doing all this for fun just to watch it all burn it down like a joker. And eventually, wow, Keikato was driven out of his kingdom because um, he ends up kind of like um, not. He didn't actually have sex with this other goddess, but but Tezcatlipoca made it seem like he did. So he was disgraced, and so he left the kingdom and became this hippie. Grew out his hair and started traveling all the other kingdoms of Mexico. Like Jesus, yeah, like Jesus. <laughs> That's what they say in the book. He was actually the Jesus of the Toltecs, and. Um, <laughs> He, there's still markings. There we go. There's still markings today of his uh, of his travels and, and the different you know um, disciples he had and left in those little cities. But uh, in the end of it, he goes off into the forest and um, sets himself on fire. Oh my god! Oh. Yo, during all of that, I had one uh, mind blowing epiphany that like I'd never put together before. Uh, but Texas was like Toltec. Uh, you know, Aztec, all that. It's from Tex- Texas, mm-hmm. right? There's some correlation uh, there, yeah, because um, yeah, it was more, up there was like ancient Mexico. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like the Yucatan I'm, Peninsula. It's fascinating to me. 
The Yakuza. That's where the uh, that's where the the comet uh, thing hit. Uh, with the younger Dryas, and it blew up that part of that's where the that's what created the Gulf, and then uh, they they say that they have found pyramids off Cuba, and uh, some of the biggest pyramids are actually in Mexico. One's called La Danta, mm. and uh, there's this other guy Scott Walter who did this uh, thing about the Mayans, and he found out that they were getting uh, their their blue dye. Uh, there's this place in Georgia that might have been the source of where they're getting this blue dye to use from the for crabs the, for the Mayan blue. Uh, no, it was like from from rock, some type of uh, oh, rock or stone. Lapis or and uh, oh, and beautiful. and then you have that connection in Georgia with Atlanta and Atlantis. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's also a big giant pyramid in Georgia too. Really? So the, uh, definitely uh, civilization was a lot different than, than how we view it now. Like there could have been a lot of land right there in the Gulf and uh, the Yucatan could have con- very easily uh, connected into um, America. Uh, I mean, so yeah. Uh, yeah. I was, hey, I Eddie, I would love to get you on the show and uh, again and uh, and just pick your brain like this with yeah. uh, that's some cool information, man. Uh, maybe we'll just do it for just Patreon only, sure, and uh, and put it out and just just have some fun talks, man. Talk about ancient civilizations and stuff like that. We love talking about that around here. So yeah, I'm down for um, it, man. I'm down. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, so okay, you told every, did you tell everybody your YouTube channel too? Yeah, I did. Yep. All right. Hell All yeah! Good. All right. All right, all right. Cool, cool. All right, well, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, This was uh, Esoteric Eddie. Uh, Go check out his book. Check out the YouTube. Do all the things, right? And remember, if you're not down with that, wake Wake up. up. Hell yeah. Thanks for having me.
atmosphere, then the memory remains. The memories remain. Energy cannot be created nor destroyed. Therefore, the past is there to be discovered. To discover who we truly are. Because we're just looking for answers. To see if this is all just a simulation. And I'm not sure anymore. Life does just seem to be a blur anymore. Will we rise from the ashes? Wake up.